in the pledge. Yes, if you're able, would you please rise and join me in pledging our allegiance to our flag. Ready, begin. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Staff, can we have a roll call, please? Yes, thank you, Chair. Committee member Martinez, I'm sorry, Commissioner Martinez. Martinez present. Commissioner Simpson. Simpson present. Commissioner Trapassonian. Trapassonian present. Vice Chair Glasgow. Glasgow present. Chair Vasquez. Present. Thank you. Uh, we'll move to public comment. This is the time for any member of the public to speak on an item that's not listed on today's agenda. Uh, each speaker will have three minutes. So if anybody would like to speak on an item not on the agenda, now's the time. Okay. Would you like to speak on an... Okay, excellent. Okay, I did not see a card, but excellent. You are more than welcome to come. And, um, okay, it looks like it's making its way to us right now, but you can, you can begin whenever you're ready. I think... Commission members, uh, commissioners. <laughs> um, my name is Alan Kincaid. I live at 419 South Tracy Lane in Orange, um, near Chapman and Yorba, and I'm here to ask that when it comes up as an agenda item, that you please consider voting no on the Cornerstone Park Cemetery project. Um, if, you look at the, if you look at the handout, um, it shows the proposed location, which is currently, uh, the location is located on a previous landfill it's wedged in between a neighborhood, a child development center, a daycare, a dog park, the Santiago Creek Trail uh, walking trails, um, and Yorba Park. So I think it's a very inappropriate location for beginners. Um, also, so it's going to be uh, 3,600 bodies uh, encased in a four foot by eight foot concrete grid with white gravel. Uh, no, no grass covering and very little landscaping. Uh, if you look at the second page, uh, the Orange County Healthcare Agency has sent three letters to the owner of the project, uh, this being the third one. Um, I'll read from, from some of these. Um, as you're aware, the LEA has informed you on numerous occasions of your responsibility to comply with Title 27 regulations, of which those are protect public health and safety and prevent damage to structures, roads, utility, and gas monitoring and control systems, prevent public contact with waste, landfill gas leachate, and prevent landfill gas explosions. Uh, on the third page, uh, you'll see the LEA informed you via letter, informed the owner via letter, uh, that the proposed post-closure land use for the former Levita disposal site to a cemetery was not approved. Um, our conclusion remains that the use of a cemetery at the site is characteristically incompatible with Title 27 regulations. Uh, differential settlement still remains a paramount concern. Uh, the issue has not been adequately addressed in all submittals and comments provided to the LEA. Uh, factors that are critical to the differential settlement include, but are not limited to, added weight of additional cover, new buildings, people, vehicles, constant modifications for the cover of each burial, and the inability to plan or regrade is necessary. The proposed plans do not provide sufficient or correct detail for the landfill cover engineering controls, uh, example drainage, 
uh, erosion control, cover water runoff, and infiltration into the waste, enhanced landfill gas generation, et cetera. Additionally, these plans do not address the effect of the decomposition of approximately 3,600 bodies on the existing landfill waste below. For the reasons stated above, and as stated in LEA's prior two letters, the proposed use of the former Levita disposal site so it, to a cemetery is characteristically incompatible with the criteria set forth in Title 27 regulation. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kincaid. Any other public comment? Okay, seeing none, we'll move forward. Uh, now to our consent calendars. Commissioner, we'll look for a motion to approve the consent calendar. I make a motion to approve. Excellent. Looking for a second. <laughs> well, I'll do it myself. Here we go. Okay. It's been moved and seconded. Commissioners, please vote. Okay. Motion carries. 5-0. Thank you. Um, Assistant Community, Community Development Director, report. No reports this evening. Okay. Uh, now we'll move forward to commission business. Uh, we will we'll begin with item 5.1. This is appeal number 0560-22, an appeal of design review committee approval of design review number 5077-22, allowing construction of a new duplex unit at 529 South Grand Street. Spohoshak, staff report, please. Excuse me just a minute while I get uh, arranged down here. Thank you, Chair, Commissioners. Uh, the item before you th this evening is Appeal Number 560-22, which is an appeal of the Design Review Committee's approval of Design Review 5077-22, allowing construction of a new duplex unit at 529 South Grand Street. On October 5th, the Design Review Committee approved the request to construct a new 1,556-square-foot duplex unit at the rear of an existing single-family dwelling at 529 South Grand that is a contributor to the Old Town Historic District. This approval was appealed to the Planning Commission on October 20th by Ariana Barrios. The project involves construction of a new unit at the rear of a property developed, again, with a historic single-family residence. The property is zoned duplex residential, or R2, uh, a zoning that permits two units on a lot. <clears throat> the existing one-story historic residence is 1,560 square feet in size, with a 320-square-foot detached garage for a total area of 1,880 square feet. The new 1,329-square-foot one-story unit would have three bedrooms and two bathrooms with a 227-square-foot attached one-car garage making it the 1,556 total square feet. A second uncovered parking space is proposed adjacent to the new garage. Other site improvements consist of an improved concrete driveway and rear concrete patio. 
No other landscaping is proposed and the existing grass lawn will be maintained and repaired after construction. No changes are proposed to the existing residence and garage. Conditions of approval associated with the DRC's action on this item include front yard fence improvements and the addition of a dedicated area for trash carts. The new unit has been designed to be subordinate and compatible with the existing historic residence at the property as detailed in your staff report and attached DRC materials and plans. Conditions of approval were added by the DRC requiring simplica simplification of the attic vents on the new unit as well as the use of smooth finish siding to further differentiate the new structure from the historic structure. The proposed project would increase the existing floor area ratio or FAR at the property from 0.17 to 0.30. Other adjacent properties in the vicinity with contributing buildings have FARs that range from 0.29 to 0.44. So even with the increase in FAR, the property would continue to have one of the smallest in the vicinity. Uh, the grounds for the subject appeal of the DRC approval are detailed in your staff report and revolve around the appellant's position that the required findings for design review approval cannot be made due to the project's lack of conformance to the historic preservation design standards for Old Town because of incompatible mass and scale, lack of subordinate design, incompatibility with the historic development pattern of the historic district, and the need for the new structure to be of a utilitarian design in relation to the main house rather than replicating its features. The appeal, appeal also identifies a lack of conformance with the Secretary of Interior standards for the reasons identified related to the Old Town design standards, uh, negative impacts to the neighborhood character and community aesthetics, and the need for environmental review under CEQA rather than a finding of exemption because the project is in a sensitive historic district could cause a substantial change in the historic resource and does not meet design standards. With respect to the action before you tonight, the Planning Commission may affirm, reverse, or modify in whole or in part the DRC's approval of the project. Staff will return to the Commission at a subsequent meeting with a resolution of, uh, reflecting the action taken. Uh, to be clear, should the Planning Commission uphold the appeal, the project would be denied and the duplex unit would not be allowed to be constructed as, a, as proposed. Should the Commission deny the appeal, the unit and site improvements could be constructed as approved and conditioned by the Design Review Committee. Um, staff would like to note that public comments were received from Mike and Allison Vukovic, the property owners and applicants as well as from the Old Town Preservation Association, Linda Maxwell-Jordan, and Daniel Cradle in opposition to the project or in support of the appeal. That concludes staff's presentation. Thank you, Ms. Bohoshek. Commissioner's questions for staff at this time? Yep. I just, just, just one quick question. Uh, in terms of the design standards, does, are we saying that the, what was approved does not fit according to the design standards, even though it's a new construction or because the existing property is historic? Well, the design review committee did make the findings that the project complied with the design standards and the Secretary of Interior standards. And so the appeal, uh, one of the basis of the appeal is a disagreement with those findings. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Chair, um, maybe just one additional bit of clarification is that the design standards apply to new construction as well as old construction. They might be slightly different uh, standards, but 
uh, the, the old town design standards apply regardless of if, whether it would be a new unit or not. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Sure, there'll be questions later. Okay, I'm hearing and seeing yes on that. So we'll uh, move forward with the public hearing. Uh, I'll open the public hearing and uh, ask the applicant to come forward. Okay, excuse me. This seems like there's a clarification on process. Yeah. Sorry, applicant. One second here. Defer to the assistant uh, city attorney here. Uh, thank you for the reminder, <laughs> Commissioner Glasgow. The appellant uh, would be, uh, if if they wish to make a presentation, would be the first in order. Okay, excellent. We'll do the right process. That's okay. Sorry about that. That's, this is a game okay. of uh, stand up, stand down. Okay, excellent. Well, uh, would the appellant like to speak at this point or? No, it's okay. I would, I would defer to the applicant. Okay. Applicant. Um, then, then from there, we'll go in the order of the of the way public comment has come in. If that's okay. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. For real this uh, time. Thank you. Um, good evening, honorable chair and members of the planning commission. My name is Doug Ely, uh, architect. Um, I have with me tonight Allison Vukovic um, and also Tom Aldrich, who is the designer of the project. Um, I am going to uh, have Allison come up and speak a little bit, and I'm going to infill after she speaks. But um, I, first of all, I would like to make a correction on what was read from the staff report. Um, the proposed unit is not 556 square feet. It is uh, 1,329 square feet, and that includes a 227-square-foot garage. So the actual living area is 1,102 square feet, and with the garage of 227, it's 1,329. This was an error that was um, made at the design review uh, committee level, and um, it was approved. There were two um, committee members that did not uh, approve it, and Tom, my associate, um, spoke with those two members, and they were under the same misperception that this was 1,556 square feet. But it is um, definitely smaller than the uh, primary structure on the site. So with that correction in mind, uh, I'd like to hand it over to Allison Vukovic, the property owner. chairs. Um, I'm a little bit nervous, so forgive me. Um, my husband and I purchased this home um, and have fixed it up and maintained the historical nature of the original residence. It is zoned R2, and so we would like to be able to build the second unit per the zoning. Uh, we've spent considerable time and effort on modifying our original design based on the feedback we've gotten from the community and the design review committee. Um, we originally were presented to the design review committee in September, um, public comments and feedback from the DRC was heard. We spent time to lessen the bulk and mass of the project, um, and believe that the design is subordinate in nature to the slab with the slab on grade construction with a lower plate height and roof form. 
We also minimize the entry to make it subordinate to the original residence. The total FAR is less than the, most of the properties on the block, I think, with the exception of one. The second unit is placed behind and to the rear, um, to the side, so that it's not as visible from the street. We did take into consideration new fencing and some other things that were suggested by the design review committee, and we're happy to make those changes. Um, again, we feel like we have taken into consideration all of the Secretary of Interior's design standards, the historic preservation design standards. Um, we also are providing a garage parking space and an additional parking space. Um, there has been suggestion that we should just build an ADU and move on with our lives. Well, an ADU wouldn't require any of the setbacks that are seen here, wouldn't require parking spots. So we feel like this is a more sensitive design for the neighborhood. Um, and it is categorically exempt from CEQA. And I think that's it. I'll let Doug fill in anything I may have missed. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Allison. Um, so um, we met with the appellant, uh, Councilwoman Ariana Barrios, on the 28th of October. And in that meeting, um, she presented some of her concerns about the project. Um, but we did not receive this appeal until the 9th of November. And the way the appeal was written, it was, it was different than what we had talked about with Ariana. So I am going to go and address each of the items in the written appeal. Um, when we left the discussion with Ariana, she was going to try to uh, meet with her constituents that's, uh, that had uh, requested for the appeal. Um, but I know that she had a battle with COVID and that, that meeting didn't occur, but we are totally open to um, have met with the uh, residents and OTPA rather than uh, having to discuss this in two different sides of opinion in front of the Planning Commission, but here we go because that meeting did not occur. Um, the first item on her listed appeal, um, it says the following project does not conform to the historic preservation design standards for Old Town. And I have those standards here. Um, and the, these standards for infill construction, first of all, these standards are uh, in coordination with the Secretary of Interior standards for historic preservation and uh, they go together like bookends and it states uh, new construction should be consistent with the mass scale materials height roof form setbacks and pattern of windows and doors of existing buildings on the street and uh, properties with new construction are recommended to use the average floor area ratio of historic properties on the surrounding street as a model for a compatible new development. Well, that's what we've done. Um, this uh, proposed project, um, the floor area ratio of that site with the second unit is uh, slightly less than the average floor area ratio for the entire, for the entire block. Um, 
the, um, the height mass scale of new secondary buildings should be minimized as much as possible, is what it says in the standards. And secondary buildings should be no taller than the primary building. The listed item here is that the, the new building should be subordinate to the main structure. Now, subordinate, and I guess we can all agree, I guess that's a subjective term, but the existing home is a raised subfloor. This proposed unit is a slab on grade, uh, uh, so it's already a couple feet shorter. Uh, it has a lower plate height. It has a lower roof form. It has less bedrooms. It's smaller in area. It has less historical detailing. And it has no celebration of entry. And um, the, I would call that subordinate. Uh, um, the second item on, on her comment here is the location of the new building does not fit with the historic pattern of development in Old Town and the view from adjoining neighbors will negatively impact the historic district. Um, well, I think what's designed here is much more sensitive than other R2 properties that have developments uh, at the rear of them, and including that particular street. Um, and I mentioned the floor area ratio. It's positioned for the least impact. So when you look at the property from the street, the addition is hidden behind the main residence. It has a lower roof form. It's not sitting off to the side uh, like an accessory dwelling unit might be. Um, it is uh, further away from neighborhood property lines than what is even required. So, um, so we're offsetting it for the least impact to adjoining neighbors. Um, the third comment is uh, accessory structures should be of a utilitarian design, uh, but the proposed building is a smaller replica, replica of the main house. Well, I just have to reinforce the fact that this is not an accessory structure from the, the term in the design standards it is a second unit. So this is an R2 property. <clears throat> and as Allison mentioned, um, with an R2 property, uh, you're required to meet the parking requirements, which is two parking spaces per unit. So this has uh, two parking spaces that have been designed. One is um, integrated into the building with a what was that, 227 square foot garage? And the other one is an on-site parking space. If this were an accessory structure, like an accessory dwelling unit, uh, those are not required to provide parking, and they're closer to the property line, and um, they actually could be connected to the existing garage and more visible. So what I've been trying to make sure is that people understand is that um, a second unit here is actually more sensitive because it's it's um, addressing the, the parking issue and it's further away from uh, neighboring property lines. Um, turning the page um, on 
the continuing part of the appeal that says the project does not conform to the Secretary of Interior standards for the same reason. Well, the Secretary of Interior standards is basically stating the same thing that um, our design standards, and there's 10 conditions that have to be met. I know I've talked a long time here, so I can get up here if you've got questions about how it complies, but um, it's kind of the same issues that we're talking about here. Um, the Secretary of Interior standards uh, protect historic structures, but they do not preclude growth or change or adaptability. Um, you know, uh, neighborhoods have to grow with, with the times, but we want to make sure that we're preserving the existing historic um, um, buildings that are here and um, to make sure that any development is sensitive and is not taking away from that uh, initial structure. Um, the other item she lists is community aesthetics. Um, that's kind of a subjective statement. Um, I guess any development would have an impact, whether it was an accessory structure. Um, but our, our challenge as architects is to make sure that it's sensitive and it's sensitive to the neighborhood and it's not visible from the street and it doesn't have major impact. Um, the, the design is is least is not de detrimental to the aesthetics of the neighborhood in that it complies with all the requirements for um, a, a second unit. And uh, again, we're uh, addressing the setbacks and the height and all that. Um, the last item is on CEQA. Um, the, it states here the CEQA exemption should not be applied because the project is in a sensitive historic district and it could cause substantial change in a historic resource and it doesn't meet the design standards and necessitates further review, CEQA review. Well, I think the staff report, I don't know if it's the one that went to you or the one that went uh, along with the original project, but it, it had, had addressed CEQA um, and CEQA is, is specifically um, restricted to not include residential uh, properties under 10,000 square feet. Um, and so there's, there's really no grounds for CEQA. I, I think that um, people that are not in favor of this hope that there's a, a way CEQA could be um, used to restrict this. But the fact of the matter is that this is a R2 property. And the property owner has property rights to be able to build a second unit. And we've presented something that we think is very sensitive um, and for the, for the reasons that I've, I've outlined. And we look forward to you denying the appeal. Um, and uh, I'm available for answering any questions as you go through this. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Lai. Why don't I ask you to stay uh, for now and see if the commissioners have any questions for you at this moment. Commissioners, any questions for the applicant or... Okay, Mr. Vice Chair. They, they've used the word utilitarian design. What are, I mean, are, is it 
um, the use of the structure or the design of the structure? How are they, what are they asking for when they say they want a utilitarian design? Well, I, I guess I'd like to hear from the appellant in terms of what she thinks utilitarian I, is. Um, me, I mean, thing, I think what I, 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 I would say, like on an accessory structure, if, if it was to look like a, um, a garage, maybe, um, it doesn't have the level of detail, maybe, that the primary residence would have. Like, um, on the primary residence, has outlookers and um, maybe a little bit more detail and adornment. This would not. Um, when we went through design review, uh, we actually peeled off um, elements. Uh, like, I think um, Anna mentioned that the, on the reading of the minutes that we removed the detailing for the, the vents. We originally had the vents to um, uh, match the vents in the original residence, but we scaled it back. So it's not quite receiving the prominence of the original uh, residence. Um, but since it's in the appellant um, description, maybe the appellant should describe what she thinks is a utilitarian. Mr. Chairman, maybe I could just read here from the design standards. Historic accessory structures were typically utilitarian buildings with limited decorative elements. Basic rectangular building forms and simple roof configurations are appropriate. I think that might be as close as we can get to a definition. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you. We'll move forward with public comment. I have a number of uh, speaker cards on the item, so I'm just going to call the names out and kind of let you know the sequence uh, here. We'll start with, uh, in the order that I have received them, Mr. Tribuco, Mr. Aldrich, uh, and then Ms. Vakovich. Good evening, uh, Chair and Commissioners. Thanks for your time. Tony Tribuco with Old Town Preservation Association. Um, just a few items. We did submit written comments, as, uh, as Anna mentioned, as staff mentioned. Um, we do concur with the appellant's uh, arguments with regard to scale and massing and departure from historic patterns of development. Um, we also uh, depart from staff's contention that the, as well as the applicant's contention, that the project is uh, exempt from CEQA. Uh, while it may be true that there is an exemption for CEQA for uh, properties less than 10,000 square feet, there are also exemptions, and there are a number of them. And for whatever reason, uh, we just don't seem to be successful in the city of Orange in our wonderful historic neighborhood to get those uh, exemptions brought to the, the forefront. And they're designed specifically to help us preserve our historic environment. Substantial cumulative impacts is one of them. While this project, we have to evaluate it tonight on its own merit, we know that there's another virtually identical project next door owned by the same applicant. Um, that was denied. We, I don't believe there's been an appeal, so there will likely be an ADU going in, probably two to three bedrooms, lots of cars, lots of parking. We were told at DRC that uh, we couldn't discuss parking and traffic uh, or CEQA, but of course, before this body, we can. Certainly, it's a single loaded street for parking from a parking perspective. There are going to be cumulative impacts, uh, not only on, uh, from that perspective, but also on the historic uh, elements. We'd also like to suggest that there be a study as to whether the intensified development uh, within Old Town has had a significant cumulative impact on the district as a whole before more successive projects of the same type in the same place are considered exempt under CEQA. 
of course, we're kind of under a siege from uh, developers building Chapman University student housing. Um, it's had a huge impact on our historic district. We've been having this battle for 20 years. The Grand Street study was designed to, to thwart exactly this type of development. This body, not all of you were here, but in 2018, uh, voted unanimously to actually downzone that particular area. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, we're also talking about substantial adverse changes in the significance of a historic resource, which includes its immediate surroundings. So it doesn't have to be on the, the actual, this is a CEQA element, does not have to be the actual historic structure itself. Um, if there's an impact on the immediate surroundings, such as the significance of a historic resource would be materially impaired. Lastly, just a couple weeks ago at a city council meeting, there uh, was commented by several uh, of the council members that we need to stop the commercialization of our residential neighborhoods. This is a blatant example of that, and if we continue to let that happen, Old Town will no longer be what it is today. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Aldridge. Is there Mr. Aldridge in attendance here? Okay, oh, sorry, okay, thank you. And then Ms. Vakovich? Okay, also with, sorry about that. Just going in, going in the order, here we go. We'll keep moving forward. Uh, next will be um, Linda Maxwell-Jordan, followed by uh, John Goad, and then Tara um, Klasner. Apologies if I misstate names. Hello, I'm Linda Maxwell-Jordan. I live on Toluca Avenue, <clears throat> just around the corner from this. And we've been reading the design standards, and they state that Secondary buildings should be subordinate. And people have talked about the FAR and the nitpicking of a few feet here, a few feet there. Um, this project is a three-bedroom, two-bath house. It may be smaller than the existing house. It's bigger than the house I live in. It's bigger than many of the homes in the neighborhood. It's not appropriate to our neighborhood. Mr. Trabuco bought, brought up the parking concerns and the design review committee felt that that was not under their purview. So I hope that we can consider that here because it is a major consideration. It's becoming dangerous to get in and out of that neighborhood because of the cars that are parked there. At a previous meeting, um, the architect claimed that the parking by Chapman students would not be a problem and it is a problem currently. Um, the house and the neighborhood house, neighboring house are both owned by the same people and the intent I'm sure is to rent these rooms to more students. And like I said, it's becoming dangerous just to get in and out of that street. Um, the word sensitive has been brought up several times. This is not sensitive to the parking issue in our neighborhood. The standards also refer to the setbacks of the historic buildings and the spatial relationships that characterize the property. And this project simply fills any space with rooms to rent. Um, the point of the design standards is to guide the design of new construction so that it relates respectfully to historic buildings. And this project doesn't relate respectfully to the existing historic home or to the historic Nutwood Place neighborhood. It is not appropriate. It's too big. The parking is a problem. Please take that into consideration. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Is there John Goh here? 
name is John Good. I live on 438 South Grand Street. The proposed rental unit at 529 South Grand Street is larger than many of the homes originally in, in Old Town. It is not typical, does not fit the historic pattern of development, which may be a house with a garage or a carriage house or a house with shed or workshop. I urge the landowner to build a barn, build a granny flat, put something that looks like it belongs in the historic district. It's going to be there for a long time. This historic preservation district is unique, and with the construction of each new non-compatible backyard rental, the historic fabric further erodes. This project does not preserve or enhance existing neighborhood character and aesthetics. We continue to need your help in protecting Old Town Orange and to remain listed in the state of California as a viable historic district. We have worked hard to preserve this community. Just because it can be built does not mean it's the right thing to build. I urge you to deny this project as it is at 529 South Grand Street. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Tara Klasner. Good evening. Um, I'm here to voice my objections also to the proposal of 529 South Grand Street. I live directly next door at 545 South Grand Street. I've lived in Old Town for over 30 years and in my current residence for 15 years. Um, we chose the Nutwood Track neighborhood uh, because of the quiet uh, nature of the neighborhood and of course the Old Town charm. Um, we looked forward to a day when our side of South Grand would have uh, a row of homes that had been carefully uh, restored and cared for and would contribute to the aesthetics and the value of, of our Old Town District. And sadly, that's not going to happen. Um, I think we can reach some compromise, though, in how large the developmental, you know, the uh, development's going to be, and to minimize the impact to our neighborhood, specifically the increased traffic and the parking situation. Um, to the best of my understanding, CICA is does need to be more thoroughly examined, and why this property is getting CICA's uh, exemption status, I'm not clear about. Um, one more of my concerns is that recently uh, there has been an increase in young families moving into the neighborhood, and I'm concerned about the safety with increased traffic and young children. Uh, so I guess that wraps it up. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you. The next three we'll do, and again, I apologize for missing some of these names here, is Ms. Good, Mr. McCormick, and then Ms. Uh, Zedinek. Good evening. Uh, the design of this project is wrong for Old Town Orange. All of my points have been addressed in the previous speakers, so I'm going to conclude so some more people can have more time. <laughs> Thank you. 
Planning Commissioners. My name is Tim McCormack, address on file. Um, I'm not going to repeat everything that Anna said in her staff report. Um, a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about I'm going to repeat, although because I think it bears importance to, to see how important it is to take a real clear look at this. One of the things I, I think as, as a designer, as an architectural landscape architectural designer, um, Anna hit on one, I believe the appellant um, brought up number 1C, the, yeah, the, the uh, proposal should be utilitarian. I think that becomes the clear solution in plain sight. I think if it was a barn, if it was something like that, it would be authentic to that neighborhood. I think having a second unit that looks almost very, very similar or is could be considered a sibling of the historic structure is the wrong design direction. I think this project could go further by taking that utilitarian idea and saying kind of more like an adaptive reuse. That even you see it all the time. There are barns in Orange that have became residences. I know of three or four of them myself. Um, but I think that could be the solution here that, that, that could be explored. Um, I think the parking and add-in traffic is, is just going to go along with whatever is built here. I think we need to be addressing that as well. Um, one of the things I want to talk really importantly about is everybody calls it CEQA, but it's the California Environmental Quality Act, okay? So I think the biggest thing of that is the Quality Act, environmental quality is what we should be really focusing on. But the more important thing that Mr. Tribuco brought up was the cumulative effect. Cumulative effect has to be assessed now, not after it's built because then the cumulative effect has happened. So we need to really look at that and see what that's all about. Above that, I think the most important thing at this meeting for this decision is precedence. The decision made here tonight will set a precedence for what's going to happen in the future. It's going to affect cumulative effect. So I think you should really think strongly about precedence because that's going to be the important issue to grapple with in the future. I think there could be sensitive redesign of this project, focusing on that utilitarian solution. And I think that could be something that could improve the fabric of the neighborhood. Although it will be more impact, that could be a possible um, thing to look at. So thank you for... Thank you. Next speaker. Good evening, Diana Zdenek. I'd also like to speak to the cumulative impact that this project will have on our community. Although the figures that I had uh, apparently are not correct, uh, as uh, Doug Ely, the architect, mentioned uh, in the last DRC meeting, apparently they were higher on record there than they actually are. Um, however, uh, the project as presented doesn't provide any information about the ADU that was initially also applied for in this project, as well as the project next door. The people that bought this house, bought the house next door, uh, they did make it look nice. There's new paint, new landscaping, no doubt it, it does look nice. Uh, but these are single family homes on a block where there's parking only on one side of the street. On their side of the street, 
They bought two of four houses on that side. And immediately, there are Chapman students living in both of them now, where before there were single families living there. Um, the other project was, uh, has been approved for an ADU. Um, and this one may or may not have an ADU. They have said they have uh, withdrawn that application. That doesn't mean that they won't come back later. Um, I, too, believe that CEQA needs to be looked at here as far as traffic. Um, as I said, it's a parking on one side of the street only. Um, traffic gets very crowded. It's a small, narrow street. Um, I don't know why everything in Old Town that comes up is always, um, was it CEQA? Exempt, yeah, categorically exempt. I don't understand that, why everything is always categorically exempt. Um, I, I think it's reasonable to assume that the combined development on this property and the one next door will have impacts on parking and traffic on this street and the surrounding streets. Uh, although the project may comply with the general plan and zoning, the city has to understand that the problems associated with overdevelopment through the South Grand Street study that was done 20 years ago for this exact project, um, and it was shot down by the city council, many of the people that are on city council now. Uh, please keep in mind that the whole ADU legislation has also occurred since the Grand Street study and adoption of the current general plan. It seems important, particularly in a National Register historic district, that we might back up and take a moment to recognize all of the potential impacts that the proposed development on these two properties may cause. And basically, an accessory structure in a historic district should look like an accessory structure, not a small house behind a bigger house. Thank you. Thank you. The final three speakers, at least for those I have on file, uh, will be Patty, Ricky, uh, Richie, apologies, Brian Lockery, and uh, Ariana Barrios. Yeah, is it on? Oh, Patty Ritchie, 223 South Center. Um, I've lived here for 36 years, and we're still fighting the same thing over again. And this project is not anything, it's not part of our historic district. It's a development for profit, inappropriate. And also, I was reading in the, about David Fletcher, who plays middle infield for the, for the Angels, and gave all his stats, because born in orange. And the bottom thing said, Orange is known for its collection of historic homes. Why do we keep chipping away at it with these projects? Preserve what we have and get some backbone with, with the Planning Commission and the, and the Council and the DRC. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ritchie. Mr. Lockery. Thank you, Brian Lockery, um, board member with the Old Town Preservation Association. Um, I'm not gonna repeat a lot of what's been said here today because it's been said a lot more eloquently than I could, but I will say that um, there's a lot in our community that feel like um, 
I know you guys have probably heard the analogy of the frog in the pot of water. And you don't throw a frog into a pot of boiling water. You throw them into a nice, warm pot of water, and then you click the temperature up just one degree, and then click just one more degree, and then click just one more degree. So they're asking you today is just click it up one more degree with this project. Then tomorrow we'll bring you the next project, 515. We're also going to ask for CEQA exemption on that because it's smaller than 10,000 feet. So click one more, one more degree hotter. And the next house will do it, and the next house will do it, and the next house will do it. And then you'll think to yourself, you know what? These are cumulative impacts. This, this is impacting our community at large. All of these projects, if you put them together, have an impact, have a traffic impact, have a noise impact, have parking impacts, have all kinds of impacts. But the city never studied it because it was all exempt. But you, don't ha you have the authority to say, no, we're going to put this under CEQA analysis. We're going to study this, and we're going to use the tools at our disposal instead of just throwing the tools away. You don't have to do that. You don't have to throw those tools away. You have them, and I'm asking you to use them. Thank you. Thank you. Now we'll hear from the appellant, Ms. Barrios. Good evening, I'm Councilmember Ariana Barrios. I represent District 1, which includes all of Old Town Orange. And I thank you for letting me speak tonight and for hearing this appeal. Um, obviously, you've heard from the residents um, about why this is so important. But I wanted to bring up some things that we haven't necessarily talked about where this particular property is concerned. Um, Mr. Eli is correct. Uh, I met with him and the property owner, um, and they were lovely. And I think their intentions are good and well-meaning. What's interesting about this particular property that we haven't talked about yet is this is the Nutwood track of Old Town, one of the oldest parts of our Old Town community. It is a very special neighborhood. So when you're talking about making a change like this, even though it is zoned for that, even though it is something that by right necessarily they, have, they can do, there is something very important about this track of homes. And if you haven't been out there to personally look at it, I really hope that you would do that before you would make a final determination. Um, the residents are right. There's only one way um, in and out of there. It's a really tight area. In addition, I'm so glad that one of the neighbors from Toluca spoke because that's actually a street where the city screwed up. We have two STRs on that street. When we per purposely made an issue that we would not permit STRs next to each other on a block. So when you look and talk about cumulative impacts, it's not just parking. It's about the um, density that's suddenly an happening on these two blocks that are small blocks, really short, very close together, where you have house in front, house in front as rentals, house in back, house in back as rentals, house right around the corner, two houses right around the corner being used as short-term rentals. This utterly changes the character of those particular neighborhoods, and it's important to look at it as a whole and not as an individual piece. Um, however, I would um, say that um, it is, to me, obvious that there is some problems with this because of the current zoning. And uh, Mrs. Zendek brought it up that we had looked at this before. I think it is a, a fluke that this wasn't changed at the time 20 years ago. And maybe one of the results could be is that this is a really big policy issue that we're starting to um, get into. And certainly the new council has indicated that they're going to be interested in, 
getting into it. So maybe this is something that you as a commission can defer to the city council because it is a deeply important policy issue that we need to address because the cumulative effects are starting to be overwhelming. Maybe it's not this project, but the next one, we need to have that conversation. So I thank you very much for your thoughtful consideration. Thank you, Ms. Barrios. Um, uh, routinely, we would ask the applicant uh, to come back and, uh, well, actually pause for that. Uh, anybody else uh, want to speak on this item that has not spoke yet? Okay, see none. If the applicant would like to uh, share anything further, and commissioners may have uh, further questions as part of the public hearing. Okay, so there's been uh, several comments regarding the the desire that uh, this should have been down zoned. Um, 20 years ago when Grand Street was down zoned from R2 to R1, this area was specifically held out from that decision. Um, I, after that meeting, I remember talking to Anna Pahoshek and she had mentioned to me that there, there was a specific reason for that. Now, it's just conjecture maybe, but um, there were already some existing R2 uh, properties that are developed on that street. And I recall Anna telling me that the city just didn't want more legal non-conforming uses. So they had to stop it somewhere. So the point of the matter, this is an R2 and it's zoned R2. Um, and the size of the property, the actual land area, is 11,250 square feet. The typical lot size is 6,000 square feet. So this is almost twice the size, and that's why we're able to add a second unit and still keep the floor area ratio lower than the average on the street. Um, just in kind of, uh, on, on the comments that were mentioned uh, parking keeps on coming up, but um, this proposal provides a couple of parking spaces on the site. Um, I've visited this site uh, numerous times, probably between 12 and 15 times, and very rarely have I seen the, the cars on the street to the point that it was uh, utterly congested. Now, I know that there are times we have community events and special occasions. Yeah, um, I think this, uh, those things happen. Um, they even happen on my street occasionally. Um, the, this, uh, Mr. McCormick talked about precedence. I think um, denying this project or supporting the appeal you have to be aware of a reverse precedence. I mean, are you be saying that the only thing acceptable would be for an applicant to pursue an accessory dwelling unit, to in which case those projects are not even heard by a discretionary review body, and applicants can convert an existing garage to habitable uh, living area and remove parking? I don't think we really want that. Nobody wants that. So that's why this 
this second unit is, is more sensitive because it addresses that parking issue. Um, there's been a number of comments about Chapman students. I live on North Waverly Street, and there's a, a two-story home that's over 100 years old on, on my street, and it was recently purchased by um, a father who is, uh, has a daughter attending Chapman, and uh, the concern on the street was it was going to be a Chapman housing uh, project. And yes, she's a Chapman student, and there are a number of Chapman students that live there, but it has, has had zero impact on our street. And you know why? It comes down to management. Uh, they have really enforced where the people who live in that, that, that uh, house are, are parking. And um, the Vukovic's, um, are going to do that too, to make sure that that garage is not a storage unit. They have to park cars in it. And um, so, um, let me just look and see if there was anything else. Um, Short-term rentals. Um, I think the city has a moratorium on that now, but I, I understand that I guess there are some short-term rentals you can't do anything about that it's already been approved. Is, is that... Is that the case? Yeah. So, um, anyway, um, I guess I guess that's it in terms of responding to uh, the the comments. Um, we feel that we have uh, designed a, a unit that is sensitive and it is subordinate to the primary residence. You know, if we build a barn, you know, I don't know if. Barns are sometimes even bigger than, than houses. So who, who knows what you're going to end up with if we went with a barn motif. But um, anyway, uh, the design review committee approved this project. The staff recommended approval. Uh, it meets all the zoning requirements and criteria. So we uh, request uh, approval of the project and denial of the appeal. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to stay and see sure. if uh, the commissioners have any questions for you. Mr. Vice Chair. I just want to clarify. The, the new unit will have 1,102 square feet of living space and 227 square feet of garage space. Am I correct? correct? So for 1320, correct. that's where the 1329. So it's right. the, the living space isn't 1329. It's correct. A three, I think it was a three-bedroom, two-bath home with right. a kitchen. And a, right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank I'm going to uh, close public comment and uh, open it up for uh, deliberation discussion amongst the commissioners. I have a couple questions. Okay. A few questions of staff. That would be the time, of course, uh, Mr. Vice Chair. Anna, there, there's a lot of talk about CEQA exempt on this property. And can you, for us and for people watching, just kind of explain why this project is CEQA exempt based on, on the findings of the city? Sure. And so there are very specific exemptions identified in the California Environmental Quality Act guidelines. Um, among them are exemptions for new construction of small structures. And there is a dimension to uh, the environmental exemptions that um, 
is designed to streamline the approval of projects because CEQA gets a lot of criticism for slowing down development and being um, an obstruction to the creation of housing and that sort of thing. So the CEQA guidelines do build in certain exemptions for construction of small structures. There's like, I, I can think of immediately 32 different exemptions for different scenarios, replacement, reconstruction, small structures, historic rehabilitation, um, and there are quite a number of them, and they're very particularly defined. Um, so in looking at this particular project, looking at the compatibility of the project with the land use policy, with the general plan and the zoning, um, looking at the size of the structure, um, the, also the determination that the design of the project complied with our design standards, that led us to the path of uh, the exemption finding. And, and I printed these off. I, I found on the design standards, um, you follow under the infill construction. Is that what this project would fall under? Uh, this project falls particularly under the subsection of the um, preservation design standards related to new construction um, and infill construction, yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chair, members of the commission, I, I flagged the actual, maybe, maybe this will be a little bit of a roadmap through this, the CEQA, the pertinent CEQA re regulations, and this would be then for your consideration. Um, first of all, as Anna said, this is a categorical three, category three uh, exemption, which is for limited numbers of new small facilities, such as a second dwelling unit and a residential property. So the baseline is that there is a categorical exemption. CEQA has exceptions to the exemptions which were brought up, one of which is um, a cumulative impact. So it might be exempt, but you have to look to see, and this is another regulation, exemptions for these classes are inapplicable when the cumulative impact of successive projects of the same type in the same place over time is significant. So, so now you have to look to see, okay, it's exempt, is there a cumulative impact? The next pertinent uh, section regulation is the definition of what is a cumulative impact. So that refers to two or more individual effects which when considered together are considerable, such as the cumulative impact from several projects is the change in the environment which results from the inc incremental impact of the project when added to other closely related past present and reasonable, reasonably foreseeable, probable future projects. So it's exempt, but there's an exception for a cumulative impact, which I just defined. Now, the, what's been brought up is that the cumulative impact would affect the significance of a historical research resource. And that's another regulation. So definition is the significance of a historical resource is material in, materially impaired when the project demolishes, not applicable here, or materially alters in an adverse manner those physical characteristics of a historical resource that convey its historical significance and that justify its inclusion in the California Register, 
or a, a cumulative impact that materially alters in an adverse manner those physical characteristics that account for its inclusion in the local register or that materially alter those physical characteristics that convey its historical significance that justify its inclusion in the California register. And that regulation then goes on to say, generally, a project that follows the Secretary of Interior standards shall be considered as mitigated to a level of less than significance. So if I might suggest that the basis of any CEQA finding on your part is whether it complies with Secretary of Interior standards. Because if it doesn't, then it's not mitigated. And then if you find that it uh, materially alters the historical resource, which is the historic district, not the house in this case, because the house is not in, uh, in question, but it's the, uh, the comments have been that it materially alters the historic resource. So I don't know if that made it more confusing or if it, if it helped focus down the discussion yeah. of the sequel. Um. And, and parking is not a CEQA consideration. Circulation in general is a CEQA consideration, but circulation does not refer to traffic on a street. It refers to um, overall big impacts that might necessitate uh, additional turn lanes and additional lanes and signals. So circulation is on a big scale. Traffic is considered little scale, not subject to CEQA. One last thing. ADUs, you can't you can't bring up ADUs and CEQA in the same sentence. The state's taken that out of our hands. Yeah, we've, we've seen enough of that. Uh, do you have a follow-up? I have a follow-up with uh, Ms. Benning. So helpful to hear the definitions because obviously they matter as applied to the exemption. So when we're talking about historical resource, you're saying that's the broader historic district. It's not the actual home. In this case, it would, be, if I hear you correctly, you're saying it would be the home if there was an altering to the existing structure or demolition, if you will, of the, of the current structure. That, that is correct. And from the comments and the appeal, really it's the, his, the, the impact on the historic district that is being brought into question. Okay. And then just on that, I find that curious because obviously we, review environmental documents is, as you said, where we do take into consideration circulation. These are things like, you know, trips or vehicle miles traveled or whatever. Um, so when you say not traffic, you're saying making that distinction, obviously, not traffic, but circulation. In That's that, correct. In that and, and not traffic, not parking. Okay, not, not saying parking is traffic. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Okay. Because certainly our purview includes, includes parking. So um, thanks for the clarification. Uh, any other questions? for staff at this time. Let me review to see if I have questions. Uh, Ms. Pohoshek, I think this question would, yeah, would be for you. So uh, in, in walking through the street, and the, the residences, or the, the neighborhood, um, you, you do see, certainly I, I see lived out kind of the, some of the density of, obviously it's R2, you see that as you walk through. Um, I guess I'm just looking through the kind of the, we just had a definitions lesson. I don't know that I want a history lesson, but just sort of the, what I'm, what I'm looking at is you can certainly see R2 played out. So I'm just kind of curious, was that always the case? Certainly others, I, I even understand Mr. Lockery's uh, metaphor in this case, or example of sort of the, the frog in the pot, kind of one thing at a time. Obviously we've gotten there and can you, it's a big broad question, but can you speak to kind of 
maybe even if we know how it went from R1 to R2, certainly, you know, when that, when that happened. Um, this is not, not the first applicant to come before a body of this type in this way is kind of what I'm asking. Sure. Um, so I, in looking at the zoning history of the Nutwood tract, you know, going back into the 1930s up until the 1950s, that whole area had a single family zoning. And, and then um, in the early 1970s and probably late 60s, early 70s, I, I don't know exactly the moment in time when the zoning changed, but by the early 1970s, the zoning in that tract became what we know it is today of R2 and R3. And um, as you observed, as you go through the neighborhood, it, it's, it's all been executed in maybe a more modest way on a lot of properties, but many of the properties have multiple units. And when you look at the character of the additional units, they're very much in alignment with what, what we, kind of development we would have expected to see in the 60s and 70s and maybe the 80s up until really the time that the historic district was established and our local design standards were put in place. So, um, you know, it's been a significant period of time that the zoning has been what it's been and there's been that slow evolution um, to the critical mass we see today of properties with multiple units. Um, in terms of more recent times and kind of the Grand Street study that was referenced and the, the change in the, in the zoning that followed the general plan update in 2010, um, certainly the Grand Street study did inform and was the impetus for the down zoning of a lot of the, the residential neighborhoods in Old Town to R1. Um, as Mr. Ely mentioned, because of the fact that so many of the properties in the Nutwood tract had multiple units. At the time of the larger down zoning effort, there was a bit of a pause to take a look separately at the Nutwood tract because of the development characteristics on those properties. Uh, um, and so in about 2016, staff was directed to take a look again at the Nutwood tract um, we, there were segments of it that were proposed for rezoning um, that it did not include the uh, east side of the 500 block of South Grand because there were so few lots that were still single family uh, and the surrounding zoning did allow for multiple units that had already been acted on. And so at, the t at that time, the area that was focused on was the area on the west side of of Grand and um, that effort made it through the Planning Commission. When we got to the council that was in place in that time, there was enough discussion about the properties with multiple units that um, that consideration was kind of set aside at that point. So um, I hope that answers your question. And, Yes, I think I, I might have some more going, going back to that as I process. So um, I'll defer to any other commissioners. Commissioner Simpson. 
I do have a comment. Uh, I have some comments, but I have a question first. And I, usually, I like to let staff know those questions ahead of time. But we did not connect. I did not uh, reach out. Um, but I think you can handle this one. I've read uh, the minutes of the DRC meeting of it was it October fifth, which was a continued item. Um, I will admit I did not watch, which sometimes I will do if I'm inclined to figure out something uh, that was discussed. Uh, but the minutes are, are, are you know, and I'm, I don't, and I'm not going down the verbatim minutes uh, path, but the minutes don't indicate some of the conversations I would have thought would happen. Now, maybe there was a long protracted um, conversation, but um, the additional conditions were not what I would have expected to see in terms of, of, of what's been shared tonight, which is extensive, in my opinion, by both sides and very compelling on both sides, by the way. Um, I just was, I guess, a long way of asking, can you give us, can you give the commission any more insight into what that, the DRC meeting was like? Um, um, I do not, I did not see that the Secretary of Interior uh, issue was discussed all, all that much. Um, I understand that parking is not part of their purview, so that was not discussed. Um, uh, but uh, any other comments you could share with the commission? I realize it's one person's view, but um, the minutes, don't indicate the, the level of of um, points made by both sides. I would say to me, and I, I just I wanted to maybe get a see if there's anything that you could share with the commission that would be helpful for us. And Please. I have more comments, Mr. Chair. May, do you mind, Anna, if I answer that? No, sure. Uh, the Please. minutes minutes have evolved over time, and back in the day before we were streamed and and recorded, uh, they were more. Yeah. verbatim minutes where you could just follow the whole the discussion it goes this way it goes that way you know um, since since we record minutes now uh, the clerk and in fact this is generally across the state the clerks association recommends action minutes so when you look at it all you see is here was the issue here was the vote and in this case uh, the, the conditions that were changed uh, so that the minutes by choice only do not reflect the discussion because if you reflect the discussion you will never really reflect the whole discussion unless you type verbatim minutes so we we've gone to summary uh just action minutes what was the topic what was the vote and were there any conditions added so um but the discussion was very much like you heard tonight great i appreciate that and i uh, I uh, have more comments on that, and that helps me in my comments when we're ready, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, one uh, question I have related to that, I, I watched the commission uh, hearing, um, uh, committee committee hearing, and I know that it came up, um, well, okay, the garage, can we condition the garage to say, in, in essence, to condition parking in the garage, not on the street? Um, there was some conversation um, to the committee. It was said, that's not within your purview is that within ours? My, my thought is yes, but I guess I would say broadly, is that something that, that we are able to do? I'll answer that one too, if, I, if that's okay. This is a design review, not a use review. The use is residential. There's no question this is a residential use, tenant or otherwise, it's a residential use. For that reason, the parking, if the, if the parking standard is met, then there's no conditioning the design other than direct, directly related to the design. Okay, that answers the question clearly. Any other questions? 
Okay, uh, Commissioner, discussion, deliberation on the item. You can always, of course, ask staff questions as we, as we move along. I can start just to give some perspective of, of where I'm at and having not viewed uh, the uh, DRC meeting. Um, I made some of those comments or questions because I'm, um, I, and I'll explain to the audience, and I'm not I'm trying to talk down to anyone, but um, a lot of times we're approached prior to an item being uh, considered by the Planning Commission to speak either the, the appellant or to uh, community members who have, may object. Um, I, and maybe there's an assumption by the, by the audience that, that we do we all see everything um, ahead of time, and, and I'm I'm not one that always sees something at DRC. I, I keep my eyes on things. Um, I would, based on what was shared tonight by both sides, I must say very compelling. I wish I would have had that opportunity to speak to um, either side or both, uh, preferably, um, and that. So that leads me to the point of I'm very, um, there's a lot more I'd like to hear my colleagues maybe bring up and discuss if I'm asked to make a vote tonight. Uh, because when I, went, when I read the item, when I did my um, uh, looking at, at, at minutes, looking at the item, I'm, and, and looking at what I know and what I don't know, and what, I'm, what I am sure about is the R2. What I'm sure about is the right of that property owner to do some things there. Um, I'm sure the DRC, I'm, obviously we're sure of what the DRC decided to do there. And that's, um, you know, we, I, I'm not always in agreement with DRC, but they certainly made a, a decision there, uh, albeit a 3-2, and I understand that. Um, and I was also very compelled by not just the frog story, but by uh, uh, the Ms. 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 Barrios's, uh, uh call for action in terms of the uh, importance of this, and maybe it, it maybe it's not here. Maybe it is uh, something the council needs to really look, like, look at. The other thing I'm sure of is this definitely hits that Chapman housing issue button. Um, I, I really appreciate those that really brought that to our attention. Um, it's the elephant in the room in some cases, but it's um, we're dealing with that as a city, and it's... Um, I'm from East Orange, so I'm not from this area, uh, but I am very, very familiar being on the commission many years to, to, uh, to that sensitivity. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm, if I've just read the staff report and I'm trying to check boxes and see, okay, it's a ball or a strike, it seems like there's some strikes there, and the, the applicant made some very, very good point. Mr. Eli made some really good points to me, um, and I'm, I would, I'd be hard put to say, um, that I can go with uh, uh, or approve an appeal tonight, but um, I could be compelled by um, others on the commission, and, and uh, that's just where I am, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for getting the conversation started. Commissioners? Commissioner Trapassoni, and then we'll do the vice chair. I just have one more question for staff, just following up on your comment, Anna, about the 2016 review of these properties in conjunction with the other properties surrounding it. You mentioned the west side of the of the street versus the east side of the street the you know city had an opportunity to review this specific block a handful of years ago in an opportunity to address some of the issues we've heard tonight in terms of downgrading uh to r1 down zoning sorry can you um expand on it just a little bit more in terms of what was reviewed that you said the west side of the street was set aside the east side of the street was decided not to review. Can you just dig into that a little more for me? Sure. Um, so the east side of the east side of, of uh, Grand 
in the NetWed tract, the general plan designation is a low density residential designation, which syncs up with the single family residential zoning. So in that instance, we have low density residential general plan, but R2 and R3 zoning. On the um, east side of Grand, the general plan designation happens to be low medium density residential, which is a little bit higher density, which uh, doesn't perfectly align with, it doesn't align with the R1 zoning. Um, it aligns more with the R2 and R3. And so um, as the, at the first, you know, one of the considerations in the zoning effort, uh, zoning examination effort was um, the fact that on the East, on the west side, I'm sorry, the west side of Grand, um, there's a bit of an easier pass because the general plan would be in alignment. The zoning, the R1 zoning would be in alignment with the general plan, and so that change wouldn't involve both a zone change and a general plan amendment. While on the east side of the street, that additional general plan amendment would be needed in addition to the zoning. Okay, thank you. Ask a follow-up question to that one. Sorry, if it's okay, just because it's related, and then I want to be respectful to your time. Uh, the state of California, so, so I think it was compelling for the appellant who said, is this something the council should take a look at? I'm saying, I'm saying yes. Um, so I, think, I think we are, as a whole, our recommendation, the council's action, the sort of mansionization in town, I think we, we want to be serious about that, so I get that. The state of California, are we allowed to downzone? Not as of uh, probably a year ago. Uh, there's no, no, no down zoning. Yeah, so up is the only way to down go. Down zoning meaning you're going from a higher density down to a lower density. Okay. So uh, that, that, that uh, ship has sailed. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Vice Chair. Um, and for, you know, I did walk that area. I mean, I walked from La Vida down Grand all the way to the um, uh, park and down River and Toluca and, and did assessment of the properties. And yes, it, it's pretty much R2 zone all the way through that area. Uh, a lot of non-conforming pro properties on that area. Um, um, but the area that we're looking, the, the building that we're looking at is, is uh, the issue I have with the appeal is that it's allowed and the standards that I read through through the through our own uh, Old Town Guide standards, it fits within that. And to me, a utilitarian, and why I was asking for the question, is a square box with a simple roof, and pretty much is what they're building. You can't get any more utilitarian than a gable end roof, California on the back, and a, an entrance off the front, and and the windows. They're following the standards of wood windows. I understand the DRC, and I did watch the the November 5th meeting, I think it was of the DRC. I also tried to go back into the first meeting they had with DRC, and there were some buffering issues when you were speaking, Mr. Tabuco. Um, I got that far and couldn't get any further on the first meeting. But, and, and listen intently to, to their discussion of, of the reasons to pass it and reasons not to pass it. And, and I kind of fell in that same group with, with uh, uh, Fox and um, Farpan, and I think um, McDermott, that it does meet the Old Town standards, and it does meet, is 
you know, for us, it's, I believe it's CEQA exempt just by what we were told on, on, on how CEQA works and, and, the, and the impact that it has. It is a secondary structure. They took out the outlookers. They took out the vented gable ends. They've made it pretty much its own little unit back there. And I think it fits more with the old town infill project than some of the buildings that are already existing on the site. Um, so uh, to me, I, I feel that I think DRC got it right when they approved the project. And that, the clarification I want, it's 1,102 square feet of living space. The total square footage is 1,329, but you gotta go back to the living space. The living space is 1,102 square feet. That's probably about the average size of a lot of the existing units. I know there's some smaller ones on there. There's some probably six, 700 square foot units in that area. If you walk down just at the corner of River Toluca and Brand, there's uh, a couple real small ones on probably 1,500 square foot lots. So um, I'm trying to be sensitive with the neighbors. I'm trying, but I think with the R2 zoning, with the exemptions and what they're trying to put there, um, I can't, I can't see a reason not to, but deny the appeal. And yes, I know Chapman students. I live on Cambridge. From my house to Walnut, I probably have 15 units that are Chapman students. So some are good, some aren't. Some we've called code enforcement on a lot, but I know Chapman students. A lot of them are respectful. A lot of them do. Uh, comply and and you know they're they're good neighbors. There's a few that aren't, and and I think with the right uh, lease agreements and the right language, you'll have good neighbors. And if that's what you're going to use it for, if not a single, that'd be a great place for another single family with young kids to be at and and have a nice place to stay. So um, my comments is, is by everything that's said tonight. I think I'm uh, I cannot uh, support the appeal and and would look to make a motion to deny the appeal. Okay, great. Mr. Uh, Chair. Yes, Mayor. Yes, Thank you. Yes. Uh, you know, everybody has, uh, brings up a lot of good points uh, on both sides. Uh, one of the things that, that sticks out for me, um, I'm very sensitive to the historic district, and uh, Grand Street is a, a street I'm familiar with going back to childhood, and I've seen that uh, change dramatically. Well, I shouldn't say dramatically. I've just seen it change. Uh, unfortunately, my uncle, now deceased, uh, put one of the duplexes in closer on Grand uh, near the park. That is not the same neighborhood that I saw. What concerns me is um, I, I personally believe that this is going to change that neighborhood, and it's going to be a drastic change to the neighborhood. There's four houses there. Uh, I'm not going to bring up the parking issue or the traffic, but this morning I took another drive by, and I, and I saw there was some traffic problems there that almost caused a little minor collision. But um, that's kind of to the side. Uh, a point that, brought, that keeps coming up to me is that um, just because we can doesn't mean we should, um, I think. I think we need to um, take a look. Uh, uh, many other people said that that this is not appropriate for the neighborhood, the the, the design that we have before us. Uh, Mr. McCormick uh, brought up some good points about the design, and um, I'm I'm leaning towards upholding the, the appeal. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trapsonian, and then uh, further comment. But we'll be looking obviously for a motion. I'm probably not going to do any good helping this. At least Simpson decide which side he's on. I mean, I, I, I find myself in the middle on this one too. Um, I grew up in Old Town. My parents still live in an 1800s home. 
one of these was put next door, definitely affected, you know, growing up in that home. My parents still see the effects today. I don't want to discriminate given who it might get rented to, anything like that. I'm, I'm trying not to take that into account. I know, to your point, there's, there's good and bad neighbors. Um, it, it, I keep going back to what is the property zoned for today and where do we sit as a body in terms of the property rights of the owner? Um, so I'm, I'm still undecided, I think. Um, I will add, I see and hear um, both sides. And it sounds like we're all speaking about our own experience too, with, as we have in the past about just kind of what's happening more broadly throughout, throughout Orange. Um, Steph, I'm gonna ask the question I, I, I'm, I'm thinking. So obviously going back to the state and we've, we've looked in the past at you know, ADUs and an ordinance to the council, I think got really right and it's really good, really solid, but there's only so much we could do. So let's say, I'm not talking about the other home that was denied by the DRC, but let's say there was a denial here. Am I right in understanding that it could be, the, the garage could be a junior ADU and then they could do an ADU in the back as well? So I, I, we heard a lot about the parking. Yes, I understand the parking. It was an ADU, but I'm just now thinking about just actually what would be allowable on the lot per per the state and the city if they went the ADU route. You're correct. So uh, the house could, the property could have an ADU added to it as well as a junior ADU. And that that's the case with... Uh, Residences, yeah, throughout the city, throughout throughout the city, because there is an existing existing garage um, on site, of course. Okay, thank you. Real quick, so oh, sorry, it, more of a deliberation question. But are you are you saying it, if this appeal holds up, <coughs> the ramifications could be something that is less appealing to the city or less appealing to the district because it wouldn't go through any governing body? That, well, the question I'm asking is we heard, we heard enough from the applicant, I think, and even others that with an ADU, parking is, you know, they don't have to enforce parking. So I wanted the clarification question on, okay, we've heard about parking, but what about actual, you know, an accessory dwelling? Like what, what does the actual additional living space look like? And based upon that response, um, I mean, we have to deal with the proposal in front of us, no doubt. But based upon the response, I'm thinking, that's not good. Thanks. To, and I know it's 11,000 square foot lot. That brings up, is there, can they only go half the square footage of the existing house for the ADU, or can they go larger than that, plus a junior ADU in the garage? What, what if this was, say, approved and, and they wanted to go ADU around, what could they do with that property? If, if this unit were approved under the zoning, you could still add an ADU. Okay. If it was denied, say, say we upheld the appeal and the property's denied to build on, then what could they put on that property? Could they just do one ADU? Could they do two? Because I think because of the square footage of the property, um, plus a junior in the garage. It, it could accommodate an ADU plus a junior ADU. You can only have one ADU on okay. a property and you can only have 
1JADU. Thank you. If you're ready, then I will make a motion of the Planning Commission to deny appeal number 560-22 and appeal to the Design and Review Committee of Design Review number 5077-22, allowing the construction of a duplex unit at 529 South Rand Street. Motion's been made. Looking for a second to the motion. Can't call for the question unless we. Well, I guess the chair could certainly, but go ahead. Well, you can. I mean, if there's no no second, there's no second. Right. So. But procedurally, Robert's rules. If there's no second, the motion carry. The motion motion fails. Yeah. Right. That's true. There is no motion. Right. Essentially. Yes. Well, there's no second at this point. So continued conversation, or of course, would look for. Uh, a motion to yeah, um, I'll, I'll kind of continue the conversation please. I guess um, the property owner has rights it's zoned R2 it's conforming they're bringing it through I think to build something that they feel they want to add to their property I, I personally I like something going through DRC coming through this body versus an ADU and a junior ADU etc it's only 1,100 square feet, um, and it, it addresses what I read in the design standards. I, I struggle with the appeal, um, but what good is the body without listening to the constituents? Like I, I'm struggling given the feedback we're hearing, so um, I'm I, I'm probably leaning uh, with you in terms of seconding the motion. I'm, I'm still trying to decide, but I, I feel like it's a broader conversation that may need to be addressed at City Council. I, I would just point out, though, that to get to the City Council, you do have to make a decision. Yeah. Well, we, we're we're going to yeah. make a decision tonight. Yeah. Yeah. That certainly, yeah. Yeah. certainly That's is the case. And I do. We, uh, um, we signed up to make a decision. Thanks for the yeah, reminder. Thank you. <laughs> but with that being said, and no doubt either, probably either way this may get to the City Council, but I think our what we have to look at really is land use mm -hmm. is this is an r2 zone it's a um it's a the the land use is there the designing review has already reviewed it and has passed it saying they approved the design of the property um the parking is there which is under our purview so the things are there to say yes this is a viable project for this zone and in this area and as a, as a land use portion of it, I think that's where I'm coming from. And, and then maybe have the council look at, okay, is this the appropriate place? Because I don't think, I appreciate the appeal, but I think that for us as a land use body, we have to look at the land use and is it the right thing on this land as, as a body and not, um, and yeah, we do look at the, the historic side of it, but I think DRC did a pretty good job of vetting that side of it saying, hey, the the they've done everything as far as for the design side of it to meet the old town old town standards and and get it on and get because if if there wasn't an appeal it'd been going to the plan check and stuff and be ready for construction six months to a year down the road but as the land use side of it 
I think that they, it, it's the proper use for the property and it doesn't violate any of the, of our uh, whole town uh, preservation uh, guidelines. I'll, uh, I'll jump in after that kind of further conversation. You know, I think, um, are there issues out in the community? We've heard from them. Um, are there issues more broadly throughout Orange? We, we live here, we know, we experience, and we've heard from folks. Is the councils, you know, seeking to address those? Yes. Um, I think where I struggle is, you know, this property owner, when they purchase the property, kind of what were the rules that were set in place? This is why we have zoning. Um, we have zoning for that particular reason. And I think as I process this out loud, they're not coming to us asking for a variance. You know, this is allowable use. We've heard, we've heard the facts. It's lower FAR than what's there. Um, point, point 0.17 to, to go into point 0.30 FAR. The average is point 0.29 to point 0.44, if I have that correct. Um, it is, yeah, I think, I think it's one of those things where in the DRC, I think probably what I was most appreciative was of, well, there are a number of things on both sides, but the applicant kind of sharing where, um, and we heard a little bit about it today, of, of seeking to balance the interest of, you know, pointing to this is where we took into consideration community input and feedback. It may not feel that way, um, but I think hearing that um, is something that I think is important. Um, so that's um, my perspective. So I will make the same motion to deny the appeal, number 0560-22, an appeal to the Design and Review Committee, approval of Design and Review number 5077-22, allowing construction of a new duplex unit at 529 South Grand Street, and it's secret exempt. So just to confirm, the motion is to deny the appeal. Yeah, so a yes vote would deny the Sorry, appeal. can you speak into the microphone, Mr. Sorry, I'm just trying Thank to you. get the no of yes. And so yes. Uh, the motion is to deny the appeal. A yes vote would deny the appeal? No. no. Um, a, a yes vote on the denial would maintain the approval of the project that was uh, voted on by the DRC. So the appeal says no project. Ernie's uh, motion is deny that appeal, which is no project. Therefore, if you vote yes, then you want to uphold the project as approved by the DRC. Are we all on the same page? So in other words, Did I say a, yes, a yes motion is to deny. So wouldn't a yes vote be to support the motion? Yes. Yes. But the motion? Yes, because it's motion is to deny it. <laughs> so you're being affirmative in the negative. Like you're affirming he's saying, so that's been appealed. He's, in, in other words, if, if Ernie makes the same motion, which he just did, sorry, he's saying he's going to deny the appeal. So a yes is yes, I want to deny the appeal. No is no, I do not want a to yes deny the appeal. A yes vote is to deny the appeal, yes. meaning yes on the project. That is correct. That is correct. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. There's a clarification. There's a, a motion. Is there a second on the motion? I'll second. Okay. You can press the button for, for us, for the clerk. They'd appreciate that. Thank you, commissioners. There's motion on the floor. Please vote. Motion carries uh, four to
to one um, for this item and for any item I will uh, call that the appeal process uh, appeal procedure of any decision made by this body is listed on page two of the uh, agenda for this evening thank you uh, we have uh, and thank you for everybody for for speaking on the item um, we are going to move forward uh, now with the remainder of our uh, commission business we have another appeal um, and so let, let's move right forward with this one. If the commission needs to take a break, we'll take a break after this one. Um, so this is appeal number 559-22, uh, Amarok uh, Sunbelt Rentals. Ms. Bohoshek. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Chair. I'm pinch hitting for Robert Garcia tonight. So. <laughs> Um, so the appeal before you is an appeal of the community development director's denial of a request to construct a 10 foot tall electric security perimeter fence on the property located at 1170 North Main Street, which is occupied by Sunbelt Rentals. The project proponent, proponent Amarok proposes to construct the electric security perimeter fence within five feet of an existing six foot high chain link perimeter fence. Um, with the intention of deterring and detecting trespassing on the property and the theft of equipment. The municipal code limits fence height up to six feet in the urban mixed use zone and does not generally allow parallel walls or fences within five feet of each other. However, the code does give the community development director authority to make a determination on fences or walls exceeding eight feet in height and to make a determination on perimeter fences or walls within five feet of an existing fence or wall as presented in your staff report. <clears throat> on October 12th, the community development director denied the requested fence installation due to the proposed height, proximity to the existing chain link fence and location of the fence on the site. And in particular, the fact that the fence crosses multiple property lines. On October 26th, uh, Amarok, the project proponent, filed an appeal of the director's denial based on the company's desire for additional site security given recent repeated incidents of property theft, the independence of the electrified fence from the power infrastructure, um, per, per the proposed fence, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, pro the proposed fence's conformance with the California Civil Code, uh, and that the subject site is not a residential property. And up, up on the dais, I did, uh, it may be next to Commissioner Martinez. I have a printout of the- We have the printouts, they've been oh, passed okay. out. Yes, thank you. Um, so with respect to your action tonight, uh, the municipal code authorizes the planning commission to hear appeals of actions taken by the community development director. Um, staff would like to note there was an incorrect reference in the staff report to appeals involving the city council. Um, for clarification, this item is an appeal of a director action to the planning commission. It would not go to the city council unless an appeal is made of the commission's action tonight. Uh, so the commission has the authority to affirm, reverse, or modify in whole or in part the action that was appealed. So should the planning commission uphold the appeal, Amarok would be able to construct a 10-foot high electric security perimeter fence on the property within five feet of the existing six-foot chain link fence. Should the commission deny the appeal, the director determination would stand and staff will return with a resolution reflecting the commission's determination. 
That concludes my presentation. Thank you, Ms. Bohoshek. Um, commissioners, questions for staff? Okay, uh, seeing none, we'll move forward. I'll open the public hearing. Um, so again, any member of the public wants to speak on the item, but we'll begin uh, with the applicant uh, who's here, Mr. I believe Keith Kaneko. If I'm sorry if I mispronounced, you can restate if that's the case. And the time is yours, take the time you need. Thank you. Chair Vasquez, Vice Chair Glasgow, members of the commission, thank you very much for this opportunity. My name is Keith Kaneko, uh, and I'm with Amarok, uh, but also representing Sunbelt Rentals here. Um, I want to run you through just a quick presentation. Um, just, I'm not sure what um, director had passed out to you, if it's the same exact presentation that I have. Oh, perfect. Okay. Then I'm going to, that's okay. It's right up there. Thank you very much. And we have screens with it as well, so we're covered. Wow. Yes. <laughs> All angles. That's great. So I'm requesting um, basically to grant an appeal. Uh, and approve the project uh, for Sunbelt Rentals at 1170 North Main Street um, with one particular, I guess, mitigating revision, which I want to address uh, an issue that staff had mentioned. But before we do that, I want to run you through just a quick understanding of, of um, our type of per perimeter security and just have an understanding of how it works, also where it's located within the city at, at, at currently, as, as it currently stands. Well, let's jump into this here. Okay, first of all, um, these installations, this type of security technology is not new. We've been around for many decades, thousands of installations across the US, uh, more than 600 here in the state of California, and actually uh, two existing installations here in the city of Orange at present. Um, our type of technology is specifically to secure and protect the perimeter of businesses, commercial industrial type businesses that are bound to storing their valuable assets in an outdoor yard. This is not for residential use. This is not for protecting retail centers. Uh, this is specifically to protect you know, outdoor storage, whether it be parking, freight, tools and equipment, um, et cetera. Oh, you are. Oh. Okay, I thought I was doing it. Okay. Ms. Bohoshek's always in control. That's great. That's great. That's great. No, thank you very much. Okay, so I'm not going to run through this, read this off to you, but here is, you know, these bullet points represent the typical types of industries that need this type of perimeter security. Again, the commonality amongst all these are outdoor storage, outdoor parking, utilization of an outdoor yard, meaning they do not have the luxury of pulling valuable assets into a protected and secured building. Everything's parked in the outside. Um, again, these are just kind of a, a representation of some of the uh, types of businesses that we do protect, some of our national accounts, uh, two of which we currently reside in the city of Orange, ABF Freight and Caliber Collision. And I do have a map indicating kind of where those are located. Okay, next slide, please. Um, but here, specifically, we're talking about Sunbelt Rentals. And again, they're tools and equipment, small equipment, even large equipment. Unfortunately, they are getting hit with criminal trespass and theft. But in addition, what's also been communicated is the reality that we unfortunately all face, especially over the last few years, is the criminal element has become much more aggressive. They've become much more brazen. Um, Sunbelt, we've been securing Sunbelt facilities across the US for many years. It's always been a discussion pre-pandemic 
that look, we need to reduce our losses. Insurance costs go up, you know, when we lose and have to replace equipment. That tune continues, but what has overshadowed that now is Sunbelt Rentals has basically said, look, we also need this for workplace safety and security. The problem is, is because they're very concerned about criminals interfacing with their employees who come in and out all, all hours of the night delivering equipment, dropping off equipment. They're very concerned about their employees having to interface with the criminal trespasser, not knowing what their intent is, bodily harm, assault, potentially even worse. Okay, next slide, please. And here's just an example. These are some pictures of recent break-ins into the site. They cut right through the fencing. It means nothing to them. They get through that within a matter of a minute, seconds, 30 seconds to a minute. They can cut a hole that big into these properties and they're dragging out tools and equipment, uh, fuel, batteries, etc. Okay, next slide. Um, also, security cameras don't work these days. We hear that time and time again for, from all of our customers. Again, this is how brazen they are. They don't care. They wear a hoodie. Now they gotta wear a mask. I mean, they unfortunately have no regard for um, video surveillance. Sunbelt, those are just a few recent invoices. Of their, they're just spending thousands and thousands of dollars of just repair costs for their fencing, okay? Uh, next slide. And here we have just an overview of just a small area of the city of Orange. Uh, the top and the bottom is ABF rate at 1601 North uh, Bativia. And then at the bottom there is 719 North Poplar, which is caliber collision. Those are currently installed um, sites with our type of installation, securing those particular businesses. And here tonight, we're requesting um, approval to install at Sunbelt Rentals there at 1170 North Main Street. Next slide. Now, what you see before you is the site plan. Um, the red portion is what is being proposed. And this security system always goes on the interior and basically enclosed by an existing perimeter barrier, which in this case is chain link fencing as well as even wrought iron along kind of the street facing side of Main Street. Okay, next slide. I just show this as a sample installation. Sunbelt's probably cringing that I show their, their competitor's photo, but this is an example. <laughs> um, this is what it looks like. It's very visually transparent. As you can see, our system is behind this particular chain link fence. I chose this very raw photo because there's no screening, there's no landscaping in front of it. It's just, I wanted to show you that is what our system looks like. 20 horizontal strands of 12 gauge steel water, which, wire, which is about the thickness of a coat hanger spaced about eight inches apart from 10 feet all the way to the ground, very visually transparent. Okay, next slide. Our system, I wanna just quickly run you through the function of the system. Um, and there's basically four elements. There's a deterrence element, a defense, detection, deployment, um, and those all integrate with the actual security fence component itself. Okay, next slide. So let's talk about the monitor. Basically, it's a monitored perimeter security alarm fence, okay? First and foremost, per state law, it is required that there be warning signage posted every 30 linear feet along the security fence. Next, those security wires, meaning the security fence, I'm sorry, the same, the same slide. 
must always be located behind a non-electrified perimeter barrier. No one inadvertently walks up and accidentally touches the system. There's always gonna be a perimeter barrier. In this case, uh, for Sunbelt, existing either existing chain link or rod iron fencing, and our system always goes behind it. Okay, and that's to prevent, again, inadvertent access. Um, also clarifying, within your own code, it does specify that there must be some enclosing perimeter barrier enclosing the electrified security fence portion, and our project does comply with that element. Next, 12-volt DC power. Solely powered by 12-volt DC batteries. Not connected to mains power. It's not connected to the grid, okay? That's done for safety, as well as done for security. From a safety aspect, it, it addresses the issue of, you know, something going wrong with the grid, putting too much current into the system. This is solely powered by a 12 volt DC battery that's perpetually recharged by a solar panel. Security perspective, it also stops or takes away the option of the bad guys realizing that, hey, maybe I can just take down the main, main power of the site and therefore I take down the security system. It doesn't happen, this is standalone. Regarding the function of it, the reason why this technology is medically safe Number one, it's not continuous current. It's pulsed current. Every 1.3 seconds, it sends a less than a millisecond charge of current through the wires, which is akin to getting like a good hard static shock. It's basically a pop and you're just, ooh. It's a strong deterrent. It does not injure anybody, doesn't burn your hands, but it certainly is not pleasant. It's a strong deterrent. And next slide. And just to clarify, this design, engineering design, is not arbitrary. It's not something Amarok came up with or some other company. This specifically conforms with international safety standards, the IEC. It's been adopted and cascaded all the way down nationally through ANSI, ASTM, as well as California Civil Code Section 835. All of them have adopted the IEC, safety, IEC parent safety standard for the safe design and operation of this type of security technology. Okay, next slide. Oh, sorry, next one. Okay, but fundamentally, this system is an alarm system. I know the fence component gets all the heat lamp, the scrutiny, the spotlight, but the reality is it's just one component of a much more sophisticated system. Some of you may be thinking like, hey, hey what if someone just comes in with you know, insulated gloves and a, and, a, and a wire cutter or throws a tarp over the top? This is where the system shows how effective it can be in an alternative way. This system senses when there's been a breach, a potential breach on the property. That pulse current that occurs every 1.3 seconds, after four or five no voltage or low voltage returns of current to the brains of the system, the alarm unit, it will then go into alarm mode meaning it, it sensed that either the wires got cut or something got thrown over to, on over the top of it. And only then will it then, through the cellular network, call a monitoring operator who's, who's monitoring these, these systems throughout the nation and can identify what side of the property there's been a potential breach. It does not automatically call law enforcement. It calls the facility manager, whoever the first call contact is for the site. They must verify that there's a crime incident in progress 
prior to the operator being authorized to request deployment of law enforcement services. Services. Why is this important? Because we all know law enforcement resources are very limited now. The last thing they need to be doing is running around checking on false alarms. In this case, there must be alarm verification prior to law enforcement being deployed to the site. And we are licensed by the state of California as an alarm company operator there by the Department of Consumer Affairs. Okay, next slide. These systems, we don't sell them to customers. We own and maintain them. We have local technicians that come out constantly maintain them to make sure they're working effectively and safely. Okay, next slide. The system must be taller than the existing perimeter barrier. There's a cute cartoon depiction, but I think it makes its point. The same height, the criminal's just gonna jump over the top, okay? We do need additional height, and 10 feet is the industry standard at this point. Okay, next slide. I'm just gonna show you some other sample photos uh, behind some other types of perimeter barriers. Okay, next slide. And again, I'm just showing this one. And this one here, I'm showing the additional height over the perimeter fence of two feet, okay? And there's a reason for that. Okay, next slide. So I want to address the staff statement of issues. Okay, and they, the, they established the basis for denial on a couple of main points here. But first and foremost, regarding height. Our project proposed 10-foot height. Um, however, you know, we had to come before you because we requested the 10 feet. But in reviewing this with the customer, um, to hopefully, you know, garner your support and also be in alignment with director and her staff and the code, be okay with lowering it to six, to, I'm sorry, to eight feet. And the reason for that is that would still provide an additional two feet of security fence, you know, basically higher than the existing perimeter barrier. Not not the most ideal, not the industry standard, but again, we want to help and kind of mitigate kind of with staff to address their uh, concerns. Now, regarding location, um, this is where we have to basically say that, look, we have to conform with what the project is proposing. We need to be four to 12 inches from the perimeter barrier. That is per the IEC, that's per state law. That's also the same design configuration that was approved at Caliber Collision and ABF Freight, the other installations within the city. It's the same design. The practical reason why that's a requirement for safety standards is they don't want to involve any possibilities of entrapment, okay? We have to keep that system close, okay? Also from a visual aspect too, it looks basically like one fence. If you start separating things too far, it's, then it becomes obvious that there's two different types of structures there on the property. And then not to mention, Sunbelt would lose incredible amounts of uh, usable space on their property, which they so, so much uh, need to, to secure all their, uh, excuse me, to park all their vehicles and equipment, et cetera. Last couple points are key. Um, the street frontage setbacks. I mean, this system would be installed more than 53 feet from Catella and more than 64 feet uh, from the main street. Um, so, next slide, please. So, in summary, I just, you know, request uh, your approval here to uh, grant the appeal and allow Sunbelt uh, to install uh, the uh, perimeter security system. 
again, with the revision to the site plans, which would be instead of a 10-foot height, uh, Sunbelt would agree to an 8-foot height um, to address and kind of meet the current day uh, standards. So thank you very much. I'm available for any questions. Thank you, Mr. Koneko. Uh, questions, commissioners, Mr. Vice Chair. I got a, two really easy ones. Um, it's 7,000 volts. How many amps are run through there? It is, it's less than 10 amps, but is the short duration is what makes it medically safe. Okay. Okay. I know we have all heard that amperage is the thing that's concerned about regarding safety, but it's this, the short, short duration is what makes the amperage safe. The other thing is if once the fence is installed, will they take down the um, barbed wire and the Constantine wire from the top of their their existing fence that that could be a condition of the project yes and truthfully that is typically what happens when we obtain approvals from a lot of cities especially if there's an ordinance against those things they must take those down while our system goes up and, and truthfully they're no longer needed well that's i'll wait for the rest of the going maybe okay. ask a question down thank you Reminder to turn my microphone on. Thank you. Um, we'll move forward with um, public comment here. This is the time again for any member of the public to speak on the item. Seeing and receiving none, we'll move forward. Uh, we'll close the public hearing. Oh, I will not close the public hearing. I have another question for you, sir. Excellent. Thank you. With the four to six inches in the wire, have you had any instances where somebody's been? shocked and has gotten trapped between the, the two fences and a continuous, because if somebody is trapped in between those two, a continuous shock would hit him, am I correct? For that person that's, that's trapped? Until it's turned off, yes. Until it's turned but, off, and how, is it automatically turned off? Is it, if, there's, if it feels an impulse for a certain period of time, it's gonna shut it down? Okay, good, very good question. Um, first of all, our company's never had that instance, and from a practical standpoint, understand those wires, they're spring tensioned. So they're not a hard structure. I'm just better mentioning it. Someone, someone or something did happen to get in between it. The wires stretch, they move, okay. Um, regarding your question, the system can be disarmed by the monitoring operator, the business, it's all controlled by an app, okay. Um, also to note too, that along with this installation, is always the installation of a knock switch for emergency responders. It's always placed at the front entry to the property. Fire whomever shows up with the master knocks key, city assigned key, they can shut down and de-energize the whole system. I understand that portion, and I, and I saw that yeah. in, your, in, your, in your drawings and in your language, but I'm just, you know, it, it just never know if, if you know, even being spring tension, it could be even be worse. If somebody happens to fall between the two fences, only four to 12 inches apart, especially the four inch portion, and they get stuck there, that constant shock is that. That was accounted for. When the IEC established these regulations, they tested worst case scenarios, standing in water to people with pacemakers. I mean, they accounted for all the potential kind of worst case scenarios, and that's how they came up with these safety standards and deeming them medically safe. Mr. Chair. Yes, yes sir. Um, I, I have a question. So you have the chain link that's existing right now, and 
for the safety of the public also, the, uh, the chain leak is in front of the electrified wire. What protects the employees from the inside of coming into contact with that? Okay, very good question. Um, this system is only operated when there's nobody on site. When the, obviously when it's open for business or anyone's on site, it's, it's not a 24 seven type monitoring or operation. It's, it's basically only operated when everyone is off the site. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you very much. In my, in my reading the California Civil Code correctly that the minimum per state law is five feet setback from the existing fence line. No. no. So what you're reading there is the oh, that's height. That's height, height of the okay. perimeter fence. Okay, yeah, height of the height perimeter fence. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, yes, I'll close the public hearing uh, at this point and uh, bring it back to the commission for discussion. Hey, Ann, I got a question for you. And I asked this earlier. Did other than the denial, did was there any other comments on on the reason for the denial? Was it just the, the height of the fence because it was 10 feet? Was it because of there wasn't any um, room between the two fences in case somebody was trapped? Um, do we know any of that information from the? N uh, none of director. those particular topics came up. I think it was primarily the aesthetics of the situation. Uh, and then also just public safety concerns related to an intentional um, shocking of the fence and also the alignment of the manner in which the fence line crosses over multiple property lines was a consideration. Okay. Thank you. Follow-up uh, related to kind of, um, kind of staff's perspective. Um, I didn't know before I heard from the applicant that of the other locations in the city where this same exact system is set in place. I'm seeing a nod, yes. Um, and of course you came to us today with the condition to have this, the fence at eight feet versus 10 and, and you communicated that eight feet is the other fence height of the of the others in, in orange, correct? Correct. Well, believe it. So, okay, so all this getting to my question, I would presume in the community development director's review that we took a look at what else is allowed or has been allowed in the city. I guess I'm trying to figure out if that's the case, what's different about this? You know, unfortunately, I cannot speak to that because I, again, I'm, You were not the one who- I was not the one who <laughs> uh, was intimately involved with this. Uh, so I, I don't have an answer to okay. the question of how the others were considered. Okay. And is there any concern just about, in general, the um, sorry, the, the boundaries of the property. Um, do I seem to recall that there was an issue potentially about... Yeah, one I, I'm sorry. Okay. I was just going to bring that up. Wanna, yeah, for the it, In the report, it said it crosses property lines, and I didn't understand that looking at the, the map. Uh, that's correct. When you look at a um, an aerial of the alignment of the fence and the arrangement of parcel lines, there is some crossover over multiple parcel lines. Um, I don't have specifics, but it's in talking to my colleagues in community development. We don't believe that that's a unique situation. I think um, over the course of time, different industrial, and this, this property originated 
at a certain point in time as an industrial property. And so um, given the nature of industrial activity or storage yard activities, um, it's likely there are other circumstances in the city where fences cross property lines. Commissioners, anybody else? Well, just to comment, I, yes. I believe it's because I think it's the motorcycle shop that's up just to the north or to the east of yes. their property that has a chain link that runs around their property that this one I think backs up to. And then also the gas station and the car wash on the, on the corner would be another. And then on the other side, you have the distribution center um, uh, that, that would run next to and down their property line, so. Well, it doesn't exactly run down there, close to their property line. Not well, yeah, it does. down the perimeter, yeah. but it's but it's, it's alleyway. Alleyway, right? But I guess what I'm saying is that the yeah. existing it's, not, it's not, on the other on side the of the existing fence, right? But it does run along the property yeah. line. Okay, got it. Adjacent to the adjacent properties. to is the, is the right language. There you go. Okay. Anybody else? Commissioner Trapezoni, did I see a question? You on your end? Okay. Um, well, here's uh, I'll go first in terms of my initial thoughts, initial thinking. I'm, I think it's. Um, compelling, you know, in terms of, uh, first off, let me say this is a new, since I've been on the commission in the last, I don't know, three or four years, it's the first time where uh, an appeal of the community development director's decision has come before us. So it's kind of, in some ways, new for us. Um, and so maybe what I was sort of expecting of seeing of some sort of kind of, hey, we're denying for these reasons, which are stated, maybe these are the changes we'd like to see in order to get to a yes. That feels missing to me to some degree. Um, I'll take a step back from, from that to say, so, so then I think with that, it's kind of, you know, our responsibility, of course, then to make the determination. I think there's, uh, to me, compelling to kind of hear you say, hey, we're, we're fine with eight feet to, to meet, the, meet the code. And I think broadly, there's, there's some, uh, some real importance to kind of communicating for, your, for, the, for the operator these, are, these have been the challenges, I mean, very tangibly, the case of um, trespassing and theft um, and walked, walked the project perimeter today and could see how that might be appealing to folks for whom we would not want that to be appealing to do. And certainly I see this as a deterrent. So now it's, um, you know, okay, with eight feet, uh, is that appropriate? I, I'm not so concerned about the adjacent, property, adjacent properties just because it's on the other side of the existing fence. So I'll just state that for the commission. Mr. Vice Chair, and then I'll say something if there's a yeah. statement after that. And I understand their, their concern and their, um, they're wanting to secure their fence. I mean, I ran a large operation in Orange uh, set on four acres and not too far from there. And yeah, we always had you know, issues with, with people in our yard and we had alarms and at two, three o'clock in the morning, I'd get a phone call and have to go down and figure out if there was somebody there or not. Um, but I, my issue was one was with the height of the fence. Um, and two, I, I'm with you. I would like to have heard something from the community de development director to say, hey, this is my reason to deny this. So when it came to us, we could look at those reasons and, and see if there was something we could do to, um, to, to mitigate them and, and, and get a com, uh, compromise between the, the two entities. Um, and, and I'm not sure if we can do this. Could we, and be up to you, maybe postpone this until our, our next meeting and, and maybe get some input back from the community development director to say why this was denied 
and and then bring it back to us and, and so we can have some information? I mean, looks, looks like the senior assistant city attorney, SR Mycope, has a response. Did, did you have a copy of the letter? And I realize it's very sparse, but do you have a copy of the letter from the community development director? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's in our packet and, okay. and it can be viewed on the. But it, it was okay. very, there was really no reason for denial. Think well, it, well, the reason is what was stated. I'm not willing to support this request yeah. due to the proposed height, location on the site, and proximity. So I guess where I'm, where I'm, where I'm at with what I think you're saying is, okay, so where would you be okay with the proposed height? Where would you be okay with the location of the site or the proximity to the existing and, chain link fence, if at all? In, I mean, me looking at it, I'd like to see maybe a little bit more distance between the chain link and, and the electrified fence. I understand it's a rental yard and they, they've got to move equipment in and out and, and you know, they've done a pretty good job of beating the fence up they have right now as I drove around it and saw the, the poles that they hit and knock over. And so, but um, with that being said, I, you know, I, just, I, I just still feel that even with less, the, the spring tension on that, if somebody was to get trapped in there, there'd be a constant shock and, and I'm not going to say anything about the the, the, the personnel that, that that could be ones being trapped there, but it could something that could happen, and and that's my reason for a little bit more distance. So there could be a safe zone between the two, that that would you know be able to get somebody out of there without getting continually shocked. So. Commissioner Trapasonian, I'm making up that you wanted to speak. Sorry, <laughs> I'm wanting you to speak down. No, I, I think it would be nice to have a little more context to behind the denial. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you in terms of like, could we could we punt it and try to try to get a little bit more information? I, I don't know. Um, I, I trust the civil code in terms of the distances and heights and things like that. And I would just say, it, unfortunately, this is something that business owners feel that they need to keep their properties safe and secure and, and uh, hopefully if this were to move forward I'd say you know hopefully it's a, a message to those that would try to take advantage of businesses to, to not do that um, so that's where I'm at Great. thank you I, the other side I have a comment I appreciate the vice chair bringing up the question about the uh, community development directors reasons and such um, but I would just add and from a perspective of someone who worked in in uh, public and on the staff side before this was the opportunity for staff to make the case the um, the letter was i understood it but it wasn't um, it wasn't the case was not made um, on either of the three points to me or explained uh, very thoroughly on of the reason for denial so um i believe staff had the opportunity to do that and it should have been done um I wouldn't mind continuing it, but I also don't know that that's fair. In fact, I'm, I'm ready to support the appeal and allow this to be uh, to move forward if, if there was a suggestion or a, a support for that. But I'd even go further and I would add it to a, a motion that the uh, um, the fee of $1,000 be um, uh, either, I don't know if it's appropriate to say waived or if it wasn't spent, um, not charged to the applicant or to the uh, proposal. Uh, if I could explain, if the appeal is successful, uh, he would they would automatically get their money back. Okay, thank you. Well, then I'm ready to support. And that. also, just just to maybe focus a little bit, the appellant makes the case, makes the case. Mm -hmm. not the not the the reason for the right. Appeal. But the staff report was poorly written. <laughs> well, I think um, let me take a step back. Um, I know I know. I speak for all of us. We. We appreciate staff. We're grateful. Um, 
always do a great job. The way I think maybe just even our, our newness of this process, it seems like the standard uh, denial to the applicant was the denial, and perhaps in the staff report there could have been a reason as to, to why, and I think that's kind of what we're collectively now starting to say would have been helpful, but nonetheless, here we are. Uh, making a decision and so I, before there's a motion would look to Mr. Martinez and yeah then we can I, make I, a motion. I, I feel the same way I, I would have liked a little bit more um, information and then to learn on top of it that there's already two other businesses that have that it just and I certainly uh, hate to go against staff because they do such mm -hmm. a tremendous job and I, we rely on them so much so I hope this doesn't reflect on them and uh, us questioning them um, but like you said they have the chance in and unfortunately, I don't know if it's fair to him. Yeah, and I, I will say, um, you have a comment? Why don't you go first and then? No, I just want to, if they will, um, one thing I'd like to see do, it says 4 to 12 inches. I'd like to have a condition that it's a minimum of 12 inches between the two fences. Yeah, so um, that gives a little bit of room between the fences. He says 4 to 12 inches. I'd like to have that 12 inch all the way around. Well, if that's the case, um, I'd like to ask the applicant. I see a head nod, but I'm going to open the reopen the public hearing, invite the applicant back if that's okay, real fast. And if you could just uh, come back up to the podium, please, and um, I'll ask the question for the the vice chair if that's okay. But he's how would you would you be amenable to, amenable to that uh, condition minimum of 12 feet 12 or 12, 12 inches? inches. 12 yeah, inches. vice chair Glasgow. Yeah, that's acceptable. And truthfully, in practice, it typically is about 12 inches. Just nature of the property and yeah. foundation, et cetera, you know, post holes, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I'll close the public hearing, uh, and I will look to Commissioner Simpson to make the motion however you choose. <laughs> Great. I don't have it, my uh, agenda up anymore. <laughs> Sorry. So I'm not sure what I'm saying. Uh, Maybe it's as easy as me saying that uh, I would um, motion to uh, uh, grant the appeal uh, for Sunbelt Rentals Amarok on the, the subject appeal number 559-22. Uh, um, and that is, is not the denial from the community development director of a request to construct a 10-foot tall electric security perimeter fence on the property located at 1170 North Main. Um, I think I heard adding the language of a 12-inch minimum for the spacing. Between the existing fence. And, and then I know you read from fence. the thing, but are you willing to change the 10 feet to 8 feet? And changing from 10 feet to 8 feet, the, um, uh, that as well. And I believe I heard the vice chair mentioned the uh, removal of the existing barbed wire. And barbed wire fence. Yeah. Um, About that would be my motion. Did I capture that okay? More than okay. And look for a second. I think I just did, I hope. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll second. Oh, or, no. Glasgow got it. Glasgow got, got to you by, by a minute, by a very quick second there. Okay, great. Commissioners, uh, please vote. Congratulations. The motion carries 5-0. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll look to the commissioners to see if we need to take a three or so minute comfort break and resume. I'm mindful we have two other applicants there. Are we seeing a yes? The uh, commission, um, we will take a quick three minute break and we'll resume very shortly. Thank you.
projects um, deserve. So I want to state that. So we'll continue uh, to move forward. This is new hearings. We're going to go in the item list, uh, the number listed, numbers listed. Uh, 6.1, this is a public hearing conditional use permit number 3187-22. Uh, Pit Fire um, Pizza, located at 1623 West Catella Avenue, Suite 102, and uh, CEQA exempt. Um, Mr. Marquez. Uh, Thank you, Chair, members of the Planning Commission. The request before you is to upgrade an existing California uh, Department of Alcohol Beverage Control license from 41 on-sale beer and wine to a type 47 on-sale general to allow the sale of distilled spirits within a proposed restaurant and an expanded patio at 1623 West Catella Avenue, Suite 102. The proposed tenant space is within a shopping center uh, known as the Stadium Promenade uh, Center. And this is a mix of entertainment and uh, retail and restaurant use. Uh, This property is located um, near the West Catella and adjacent to North uh, Main Street, kind of near where that uh, Sunbelt Rentals property was uh, previously discussed. And um, it's a destination for many uh, residents and uh, patrons and visitors of the city. Uh, there are various existing uh, restaurants that offer off-sale uh, of liquor, distilled spirits on the property. And the request before you is to um, allow this new restaurant uh, the proposed restaurant is known as Pitfire Pizza. The staff had reviewed the request and the plans. The request also included a modification to an existing outdoor area um, to be expanded, and that was reviewed administratively by our community development director. And the request also involves the surrendering of the previously approved CUP that allowed uh, beer and wine um, in 2009. The application is also reviewed by the police department and they prepare a memorandum analysis of the concentration of licenses and the crime statistics in the past year. The concentration of licenses for this census tract indicates that the tract is over-concentrated with on-sale licenses and off-sale licenses. And this mainly is attributed to the size of the census tract, which includes portions of the city of Anaheim, which is uh, adjacent to this um, area. And obviously the numerous um, businesses and restaurants that have licenses within this shopping center. And the crime statistics uh, for this reporting district, the police has identified that this reporting district is below the average of crime in the city overall. So this request has um, a kind of unique situation where um, this applicant will not need to provide any um, uh, public convenience and necessity because it is a restaurant for on sale um, and it does not exceed the the average high crime in the reporting district. In staff's review, um, we have provided a list of conditions of approval. Um, We've also um, have received no calls for questions from the public. We believe that the findings can be made to support the request. Staff recommends approval. Um, This is also CEQA exempt. And um, staff has also received some information from the applicant regarding four conditions that they would like 
to be clarified okay. and or also amended. And those are, and I'll read them for the commission. It is number 14, the sale of beer and wine or spirits for consumption off the premises, excluding the outdoor patio shall be prohibited. The applicant would like to request a modification to allow um, some off sale of alcohol, uh, similar to the Lazy Dog, which is adjacent to this um, tenant space. Um, at this time, police has not reviewed this request of modification and they do not support that change. The second modification that the applicant is requesting is in relation, or a clarification is in relation to their hours of operation. Um, they provided uh, initially the hours of operation to begin at 11 a.m. Um, and so they're requesting a change uh, related to brunch hours to um, change those hours to 9 a.m. And this condition number 18, we do have stipulated that the community development director could approve and change hours of operation subject to police approval. Um, so we have that built in there should there are any other future changes of hours operation. And the third uh, request or clarification is condition number 25 related to the bar or lounge, that no bar or lounge area upon the licensed premises maintained for the purpose of the sale, service, or consumption of alcohol beverages directly to the patrons for consumption. The sale and service of alcohol be alcoholic beverages at the bar shall be made in conjunction with food sales. So they just had uh, a clarifying question for the commission. And the fourth uh, request uh, for modification is number 33. Patrons on the patio shall be seated by a host, hostess only with no self-seating permitted. And the applicant has indicated to us that due to their operations, there are no hosts um, seating patrons. Patrons will uh, essentially walk up to counter service and request the um, meals, beverages, and then will be self-seated um, throughout the, the business. And um, we have representative from the police department here to follow up with any questions that you may have. And we also have the applicants and representatives as well. And that concludes my presentation and I'd be happy to take any questions. Thank you, Ms. Marquez. Commissioners, questions of uh, staff. Also, we have the uh, sergeant here from the PD. Mr. Chairman, yes. I was just going to clarify. Maybe I missed it. Uh, 33, you said patrons on the patio shall be seen. Did that have, that does not have support of staff or PD or um, not? yes, that one is um, supported with staffs. Okay. Approval. And PD. Yeah. Yes, PD um, did indicate that they have no issue with that change. Okay. Okay. Um, I have a question for now. If commissioners don't, uh, Commissioner Martinez, did you have a question? Sorry. Yeah. yeah go ahead, please. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, condition 18. You're, you're saying uh, uh, all days. So. It says Thursday 11 to midnight, Fridays 11 to 1. So every every day would be 9 o'clock in the morning. I understood that the applicant would request um, possibly weekend hours to be 9 For brunch. Yeah. Okay, got it. Thank you. Okay. Um, my question or questions would be just broad clarification. The hours of operation, there's nothing in the condition of approval that says that limits when alcohol could be served. It's all listed as during the hours of operation, correct? Correct. Okay. So maybe I'll also want to hear from the applicant. Certainly they'll have their time. Um, 
uh, about the initial condition about wanting some off-sale alcohol. I was on the commission, I think it was in 2020 when we did the Lazy Dog nearby. And it seemed like there was special consideration given in that time. I think some of the conversation we had, like any CUP or liquor license, it stays with the, with the facility. Um, it seemed like it was very specific to the Lazy Dogs, kind of a, a line they were trying to get into selling. I don't know if we, I can't remember if it was their own beer, but it was just, yeah, I'm trying to recall some of those conversations. And it seemed like there was sensitivity even from our commission. We gave them the approval, but I seem to remember some sensitivities it, about that. And you're right. They had a, I think they had special IPAs that they would run, but it was a conjunction with food sales and it was delivered by Uber <laughs> or, or hand picked up. It couldn't be, you know, they had to verify age and stuff. So there was there were some conditions that went, went with that, but it was just because they had a select following of people that liked their beers, and it was during the COVID periods, and and a lot of times they weren't open, but they were t still trying to sell, and they were that I believe that's why why we that. approved it, yeah. and and why it was done yeah. that way. Well, maybe so. we can uh, when we hear from the applicant, we can learn more about intent and 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 have those um, conversations. Right. And I think it was just their beers. I don't think it was. That, that they sold on on site. Um, apologize for the the pause. So uh, I have a question about condition um, twenty six. Um, this has, and I recently watched the the council's. Um, I have, have to say this because it'll resonate, obviously, in terms of the, the background. This is a different condition than we've normally seen. Traditionally, we've seen this addressed as a happy hour. I'm making no point about what any, I'm not getting into any of that. I'm just looking at staff. Normally, we look at conditions like shall not do things or shall do things. We're saying you may do, and I just don't know if there's a better way to state what we're trying to accomplish there. Um, it just seems out of out of place. Alcoholic beverages may be offered in combination, and I guess the question I'd ask staff is, do they need us to grant them that authority period, or or can they do that? Um, and yeah, please, uh, Mr. Chair, members of the commission. I think it, maybe the wording in this first go around of this type of a condition is is awkward. The there's like a misplaced modifier in there. I believe if we read it as alcohol, be alcoholic beverages may be offered at reduced rates only in combination with non-alcoholic beverages and food items, and then from Monday to Friday, et cetera, okay. that th the emphasis is on the fact that we are limiting reduced rate alcohol to s only certain hours. So it is a restriction. Right. And I think that's a parsing of words. The only, as the operative yes. word, makes, makes more sense to me. Okay. okay. Well, we might revisit that. That's helpful. I think that okay. would, I would say, yeah, that, that works. Okay. Any other questions for staff? Okay. We'll open the public hearing. Uh, the applicant can come forward and uh, make your presentation. And then, of course, commissioners will, will ask questions after that. Thank you. Good evening, Chairman, members of the commission. Uh, my name is Moni Dosange with RSI Group, 3187 Airway Avenue, Costa Mesa, a representative for Pitfire Pizza. Uh, in addition to myself, Jeff Goodman with Pitfires here as well in case there's any operational questions. Uh, firstly, I want to thank Vidal and staff for their time, not only today for their presentation, but over the course of the last couple months, just giving us guidance on this process and to even be able to present before you tonight. So just want to acknowledge all the efforts put in place uh, prior to tonight. Uh, with regards to the conditions, um, 
the offsite sales, uh, though it's uh, incidental to our operations, it's uh, similar to what you guys had mentioned. It would be catered to a lot of the third parties, so if, uh, DoorDash or Grubhub, whatnot. Um, so we would like to utilize the ability to provide beers or wines for those third parties. So that's really the baseline intent of that modification. And is that uh, standalone? Is that with, uh, would it only take place with the purchase of food? Correct, with the purchase of food. Only with the purchase of food. Uh, regarding the um, condition number 18, brunch, we're requesting it only on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, to be allowed to open up two hours in advance of, similar to some of the other concepts that are within that center. Since they're offering a brunch program, we feel that it'd be beneficial for us to offer the same. Uh, regarding the um, conditions 23 and 33, as uh, Vidal mentioned, the way our operations is, there's there's not a hosted, um, there's not a host or a guest that will take you to your seats. It is open seating. Everything is ordered at our front counter. Um, so that's why that condition doesn't really apply to our operation type. So that was a request just to kind of clarify how we operate. Um, other than that, we're in agreement with your conditions. Um, the Previously mentioned uh, happy hour clause. We're in agreement with that as well. We're not uh, we're not really pushing uh, happy hour. Uh, it would be in conjunction with uh, food sales as well. So we're in agreement with any modifications you guys are here to make on that. I'm with that here to answer any questions. Jeff's available as well. If there's anything you guys want to dive into deeper on. Excellent. Did you, Vice Chair. Did you address? I think it was 25. Um, yeah, so I think there might have, uh, we have no objections with how 25 was uh, written. Um, so but I'll apologize if there was confusion, but we weren't seeking any modifications on the language of that condition. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, 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 if I understand correctly, you have seven restaurants uh, total, or the company Pitfire does? Uh, yeah, you know, I will uh, defer that to Jeff. He has the exact counts. Got it. I don't okay. want him to speak. Good evening. I'm Jeff Goodman. I'm a partner and CEO of Pitfire Pizza. Gotcha. Thank you. To answer your question, yes, we have seven restaurants. This will be our eighth. Okay. So you have one in Orange County. Yes. In Costa Mesa and the rest are in L.A. County. Correct. So you're asking for a Type 47 license. Is that the type you hold at all the other restaurants? Not at all. Um, but our most recent restaurants and our future restaurants, yes. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you. I do have um, the. I think what I was going to say. Um, the menu when you guys sent it, you guys didn't send us a menu of. I, I, I look at a pizza parlor as as beer and wine and and not really a, a type forty seven type license where they're going to serve spirits. I mean that's to me is you know, more of an Italian type restaurant or a dining type restaurant and not just a pizzeria that, that looks like you're going to do. I'd like to have seen a. A menu that I don't think was submitted in our in our reports. Uh, that's correct. We did request a menu indicating what type of spirits or cocktails would be provided, uh, but the menu provided uh, to the commission only has the the food menu. Okay. Thank you. If, if I may, I'm happy to describe. Uh, we are beyond uh, uh, like a pizza parlor. We have 12 pizzas on our menu. We have 44 actual food items on the menu, um, hand-tossed pastas, uh, a handful of salads, vegetable plates, some shares and smalls and appetizers, some desserts, and a 
eight item children's menu. So it's an extensive food program. Thank you. Mr. Chair, a, a point, of, point of correction. There is a, a menu. It's on the applicant's uh, letter of explanation. It's a second to the last page. Forgive me. Sorry about that. Thank you. Certainly. Quick, quick question, too. Um, I've been to your Costa Mesa location, um, set up very similar in terms of ordering and then the food coming later. Are all your, other, all your restaurants in L.A. set up that way as well? Uh, yes, you, you order at a counter, uh, and a food runner brings your food and drinks to the table. So the, the alcohol is brought to wherever the patron chooses to sit down, or is it given at the place that, of order? Sorry, that's an evolution of our concept, where okay. first drink is uh, guest ordering at the counter, taking that drink with them to their table. Okay, thanks. Curious Martinez, did you have another question? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, two questions uh, for me, I guess. Uh, number one, your other stores, do, are you, do, do you do um, alcohol uh, sales to go as well? Uh, yes. As, you know, oh, for delivery, I should say. Similar to uh, how uh, Lazy Dog was described. Okay. This really came about during the pandemic, pandemic and has been an important part of how we've survived, um, and we want to be able to maintain that. It's not a, a significant part of our business, but it's, it's significant enough to, to make this request. Okay, great. And then obviously I'm assuming all the other conditions of approval are good to go. I'm going to say specifically, obviously, when it, when it talks about reduced... Um, Beer, food, it's with a specific set time. Um, We're comfortable okay, with that, right. yes. With the time is listed. Okay, great. Okay. Yes, Mr. Meister. So the first, the first drink is served and given to the patron <clears throat> as they walk away and sit down. The subsequent drinks will be served by... Uh, subsequently, guests need to get up. They go to the counter again and they order. So there's always a there's always a server um, producing the drink and handing so, it to a guest. Um, so when on your patio area, you won't have any employees out there. You won't have anybody walking, make sure nobody walks away. Nobody on a on a typical shift at a pit fire, there's eleven or twelve front of house employees um, working in various places in the floor. There are people who are monitoring and assisting guests. There's just not a traditional waiter or waitress system. And and your food is. Picked up at the counter also, or is it food? The food is run to the table. Run to the table. Okay. Thank you. Any further questions? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, move forward with public comment. Okay. Seeing uh, none, uh, we'll close the public comment or public hearing, and we can still ask questions of staff. So we'll close public I'm hearing. The sergeant to have him. Okay. Great. So we'll bring. It's been requested, uh, Sergeant. Um, I'm sure there'll be a few questions. Appreciate your being here as always. Mr. Vice Chair. Good evening, Chair. Members of the Commission, Sergeant Chris Mountain, Orange PD. The conditions they want to look at and modify, do you have an issue with any of them? The only, the ones that they proposed, no, the only one that we had no knowledge of was the growler, um, the okay. off sale. Um, they're talking about the only, and they never brought that to our attention. So through the whole process of, it was Detective Nico, Investigator Nico Gonzalez, who was the head of it, he was not here tonight. Um, there was no mention of that particular system. So that's why at this particular time, we don't have, we, don't, we can't voice our opinion or recommendation on that particular one is because we don't know how that system works with their company. 
Okay. Um, have, you, have you run into any issues with, in, in general, with restaurants that operate in that way, given COVID created the sense of ordering alcoholic beverage through third-party delivery apps? Do you, do you find issues with that at existing restaurants now? The only the only existing restaurant that I know of right now would be the Lazy Dog. Lazy Dog. I'm not aware currently of anyone because during that COVID time, restaurants were allowed to do things without the PD's knowledge. So when restaurants would do that, it's not like the PD went around to check to make sure things were going on. So we weren't aware of those particular restaurants. So we don't know of any of the issues that may or may not be associated with that. I, see, I seem to recall that there was an executive order from the governor's office that allowed, allowed that throughout the state. I, I think wrong. there was something in the COVID language that yeah. allowed them to do outside. Um, okay, uh, any other questions for uh, the sergeant? Um, yeah, I, I do actually, sorry. Uh, question about the, the I, I have one, uh, about the, the patio uh, use. That, that, that's a standard condition. We see it often and some applicants, you know, ask for us to consider maybe certain hours or sorts of things. Um, just from your perspective, obviously it's in there as a condition, you know, your, your take on, on the importance of that, having somebody man and kind of the patio space we're hearing tonight from the applicant that's not their their business model if you will typically in the conditions that we that we for set for the restaurants that have patios we put the condition in there that they have the ability to monitor the patio at all time um, i believe that is in the conditions yes in the patio conditions set forth for pitfire pizza we understand but they're we weren't aware that they're going to be seated excuse me seated just on their own. That's something, another thing that was just always brought up to us tonight. We don't have a problem with that as long as they, they go with the condition that they are able to monitor the patio with their employees to make sure that alcohol is not leaving the premises without their knowledge. So a condition intentionally, intentionally stating monitoring is on the operator and specifically what they're monitoring for. Yes. Right. Okay, great. And I'm seeing that there's a condition about the, the patio gate being enclosed at all times during business hours. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, the patio shall be enclosed. This is condition 31. Yeah, um, yeah, that's one of our standard conditions right. with the patio. I want to, and I'm going to clarify this with the uh, uh, applicant also, because right now there's no locks, there's no nothing on those patio doors. They're just wide open. Um, that, I believe that's the way, I, yeah. I think as a condition we need to look at maybe having them put some type of a, um, a latch on it, so an, an alarm latch, so if there is nobody out there and somebody decides they want to walk through it, it's going to allow, let them know that somebody just left their patio area. So, we can agree with that, yes. Um, but that, that's something I was, when I was walking the perimeter the other day, that's something I noticed that those gates were just yeah, open. And, and I think no we, latches on them, no nothing. And I think we just did that with zinc, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we did. Yes. So as a condition of approval. Oh, right. Recently, did. yes, and that's a temporary fence, so it's not even a permanent. But Correct. we did do that with zinc. Correct. Okay. okay. Thank you, Fisher. Any other questions? Ms. Actually, yes. okay. <laughs> if I can ask, thank you. You brought up a good point about the patio and the latches and stuff, and I was out there looking at it. Uh, is that? I'm sorry. Uh, so is it a question for the applicant? Yeah, the applicant. Okay, so I'll uh, reopen the public hearing, and the applicant can come up. Yes, Commissioner. Thank you. Um, is that patio? Is it coming down, and there's going to be an entire new patio put up, or are you just expanding that? No, we're just the existing patio will remain as is, and we're doing an expansion to it. Okay, an expansion. Okay. Correct. So those those gates will be there. 
Correct. And then there's, there'll be more patio. Exactly. And in addition to that, per ABC requirements, we have to have our patio fully enclosed just for that uh, purpose. So in addition to just operational concerns, ABC also requires us to have that patio fully contained. Okay. Thank you. And then uh, just to address the comment regarding monitoring of the patio, um, as Jeff had mentioned, uh, even though there's not a, a staff member technically out there, we do have 11 members of our team per shift. So the manager constantly circling, you know, wiping down tables and things like that. So it is being monitored on a regular basis. And that's one of the conditions that's in here is that it will be monitored. But my question is, because it's not in here, it's just um, on those gates, um, probably it's something I'm going to ask is the condition of the approval is that you put some type of a, a latch system with an alarm on those gates. So if there is anybody out there, they just can't walk out that gate and not be, uh, um, and not have something go off is to, to alert your employees that, hey, somebody's walked out that gate and do they have a drink with them or not? And, and they're walking away with it. Understood. I guess the only thing I would need to do is just circle back to make sure that those gates can be retrofitted with Panic Hardware. I, I don't want to commit to it. We may have to, we'll make some modifications, but if that's, like that's said, what we need to do. For that's me, that's going to be something I, I would want to have as, a, as one of the conditions okay. to, to use a patio just because of that reason. I mean, I've, I've watched walking down Glacelle and, and eating out a lot here in the plaza area. People sitting outside, you know, finish their deal, their, their meal, and walk, pick up their beer, pick up their drink, and start walking down the street. And, and you're in a little bit different set, area setup where they could walk and, and mingle pretty fast. So I just want to make sure that it's monitored and that if somebody does do that, you guys know about that. Understood. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? The applicant? Okay. Well, Close the public hearing once more. Thank you. And uh, continue uh, commissioner deliberation discussion. I will say I'm, I'm having a, a, a difficult time as it relates to um, the um, alcohol sales to go just because we're hearing from PD that wasn't a part of the initial discussion we're learning tonight um, and not knowing feedback on how Things have gone at Lazy Dog. I haven't heard anything. That doesn't necessarily mean everything's good to go, but I'd love to hear other commissioners' thoughts on, on that one, perhaps. And, and maybe I can ask this of, of Mary or, or staff. Is it a possibility that we could approve it without that and have, have PD and, and the applicant work together and maybe bring back um, uh, a condition down the road later that we could, we could look at or, or, or set it up that if, if PD's... Uh, uh, in uh, amicable to it that it could be done through the uh, deputy director's uh, purview? Let me, let me think about that. It would be maybe if you insert a condition that that actually specifically says that, that with the agreement of uh, police department and the deputy or the, and the, the community, uh, development, community director. development director. Yeah, I, I wouldn't eliminate the condition altogether and no. then try to add it back in, but maybe yeah. put it in there with the... Um, the approval? The approval yeah, the approval PD language. And, and the, that the community development That's just my initial thought. Anna, Vidal, do you have any? I would agree. I think that's a good way to go. And then it leaves room for negotiation, but it's understood that we will get the... Uh, uh, assurances we need out yeah. of the condition. It's approval and certainly the direction of the commission. And I'll, I'll, while you're going on, although I will be listening to you, I'll try to craft some language. And is that something that PD would be amicable to and, and the applicant? 
Thank you. Okay, we're seeing uh, head nods from every party, so thank you. Um, okay, we'll look for a motion or further discussion. I'll make a motion. Okay, um, make a motion to the uh, resolution number PC 31-22, a resolution of the Planning Commission of the City of Orange, approving conditional use permit number 3187-22 for the State of California of Alcohol Beverage Control Type License 41 on sale general eating place at a proposed restaurant and expanded patio located at 1623 West Catella Avenue, Suite 102, with the conditions that the number 14, that uh, off-sale um, sale and beer of wine or spirits for consumption off-premises uh, will be discussed between PD and, and the applicant and then may be approved by the community development director. Uh, just what I was thinking, if we just take the language here, the sale of beer, wine, or spirits for consumption off the premises, excluding the outdoor patio, shall be allowed with the prior approval of the community development director and police department. Is that so stated? Is that okay? Yep, excellent. And that the... Uh, Go to the gate. Sorry. Yeah, I'll get to that. The operation, the hours of operation will stay on Monday through Thursday. Um... Monday through Friday from 11, it's going to be kind of clear, that, that Saturday and Sunday, they can operate from 9 o'clock, open up at 9 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday, all other hours will stay the same. Um, and that also on the patio area that the gates will have panic hardware on them with alarms to sound if, if, they, uh, uh, if anybody goes out of it. Okay, and it looks like we already have a second from Commissioner Martinez. Is that correct? Uh, yes, just if I could. I, I got to oh, exclude yeah, oh, one. Yes. And I think I'm, is, um, I think uh, number 33 is the patrons will be seated on the patio. I think we've discussed that and that that will be excluded from the, from the conditions. And also number 23, that um, alcoholic beverages shall be served by a waiter or waitress and only to seated patrons at permitted tables. I believe it was understood that the applicant or the patrons will be ordering and picking up their own beverages. So I think yes. the request is to delete that, delete that yes. condition. Okay. I will second that. Okay. Great. Any further discussion? I will add, oh, well, sorry. Can we reopen the public hearing at this time or is it pause? We ha I know we have a, a live motion. In the interest of due process and uh, an open discussion. Sure. Okay. Uh, okay, but yeah, we'll. Yes, I just wanted to have. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to reopen the public hearing. Yeah, application. The motion was mentioned for a type 41. Uh, I don't know if I misheard, okay. but we're actually seeking a type 47. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, no. It, in the resolution, it said type 47. But one thing I will say is, you're going to surrender the type 41. Uh, understood. I just yeah, want to make sure I heard that condition. Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. Thank you. Uh, and I will just state um, before we vote. I work in the city of Costa Mesa. It's a great location off 17th, and looks like we're almost excited to have one here in Orange. So, commissioners, please vote. <laughs> Motion carries 5-0. Congratulations. Thanks for uh, being comfortable with the long night. And what's better in the late evening than in and out? We'll move forward. <laughs> Sergeant, thank you very much. And, and thank you, Thank guys. you, Sergeant. Thank you. And, uh, Welcome to the city of Orange. <laughs> 
Oh, yes. So uh, real fast, uh, I'll, I'll introduce the item, and then I'll let uh, Commissioner Trapezonian uh, announce uh, what he needs to announce. So this is item 6.2, public hearing, conditional use permit number 3126-20. This is design review number 51, sorry, 5016-20, and minor site plan review number 1020-20. In and out, burger and CEQA exemption finding before we have the staff report, uh, Commissioner Trapsonian. Thank you, Chair. I uh, just want to recuse myself from this topic um, just for the purposes of any perceived conflict of interest given my uh, profession. So, Excellent. Appreciate Thank it. you. Thank you. Ms. Bohoshek, hey. staff report. Hey. Thank you very much. Uh, the proposed project involves demolition of the existing 11,463-square-foot El Torito sit-down restaurant at the outlets of Orange and construction of a new 3,885-square-foot in-and-out drive-through restaurant with indoor and outdoor seating under a detached patio cover. The new restaurant will consist of 76 indoor seats and 26 outdoor seats for a total of 102 seats. The drive-through will have double stacking that accommodates 30 vehicles. The architectural style will be contemporary with varying planes to soften the scale and mass of the building and give it visual interest. The landscape plans indicate a variety of trees, shrubs, and ground cover as detailed in uh, your DRC staff reports attached to the staff report. The restaurant will operate seven days a week with hours of 10.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. Sunday through Thursday and 10.30 a.m. to 1.30 a.m. on Friday and Saturday. The restaurant drive through and adjacent parking lot will be well lit with security cameras installed in the parking lot inside and outside of the building and in the outdoor patio area. Uh, the restaurant will be staffed by 25 to 35 associates per shift with three shifts per day for a total of 70 employees at this location. Um, there are a few issues of, uh, I wanted to point out. Um, the general plan land use element addresses the Uptown Orange District as a land use focus area intended to transition to an urban character uh, with a mixed use pedestrian oriented environment. While a fast food drive-through restaurant um, is allowed in the urban mixed use zone with approval of the CUP, the site plan and format of the drive-through establishments present a challenge with respect to the city's goals for urban form and design in the urban mixed-use um, land use focus area and zoning district. Staff has worked extensively with the applicant to orient the restaurant building and outdoor dining area to the public right-of-way on the city drive to create a corner presence and orientation to the pedestrian activity flowing from the uses on the east side of the city drive to the restaurant. Pedestrian linkage between the restaurant and the sidewalk is provided to the City Drive, the City Way East, and City Boulevard East. The City Way East and City Boulevard East are both private roads. Um, the second issue is that of uh, floor area ratio. Um, in the urban mixed use area, the general plan establishes an FAR range of 1.5 to 3.0. Um, currently, the existing development on the site is a 0.31 FAR for the overall larger 73-acre outlet site, uh, and this is a legal non-conforming FAR. 
in the case of legal non-conforming sites undergoing redevelopment, legal non-conforming conditions may remain or changes can occur to a site that lessen the degree of non-conformity. The net reduction in floor area of 7,578 square feet associated with project implementation uh, re represents a change of 0.2% in FAR across the overall property. Um, which is something that staff believes is inconsequential in the context of the overall site. So um, with that, staff believes that the proposed FAR condition is acceptable. In terms of the drive-through queue, um, as I mentioned, the drive-through will have double stacking, a double stacking lane that accommodates 30 vehicles, which is the most for any fast food drive-through restaurant in Orange. Additionally, there's space to accommodate an additional 10 queuing vehicles within the parcel before vehicles would spill out onto the City Boulevard West, which is a private internal ring road for the outlets. Staff is satisfied with the results of the queuing analysis prepared for the project and the queuing management plan. Given the position of the restaurant on the mall property and the number of drive-through queuing spaces, um, Staff does not believe that the drive-through lane will impact the public right-of-way. Uh, and tonight we have with us Doug Keyes of our traffic division who's available to answer any questions related to queuing and on-site circulation. Uh, the last issue uh, has to do with interface with the adjacent Amley apartments. Um, the restaurant and drive-through lane interface with Amley has been addressed by maintaining the existing palm trees and wider planter along the edge of the sidewalk on the city way east. Um, nine palm trees along the city way east will continue to provide visual consistency with the Amley apartment frontage. Furthermore, the proposed landscaping along the northern project frontage adjacent to the city way east will serve to buffer the apartments from the drive-through lane. In an effort to address potential nuisances to the residential uses, staff has included condition of approval number 25 uh, related to odor scrubbers for kitchen vending equipment, um, as well as conditions 18 and 19 to address potential lighting impacts. The site is located in a highly urbanized area of the city surrounded by contemporary institutional office, commercial, retail, religious, um, and residential uses with an eclectic character. The staff believes that the project would be compatible with surrounding uses and consistent with the city's general plan goals by integration with surrounding uses, with, uh, also subject to the conditions of approval. Staff would like to note that a comment letter expressing concern about potential restaurant impacts on the Amley apartment complex was received from Tiffany Price-Swan representing the management staff at Amley, and that was distributed uh, to you for consideration this evening. Uh, additionally, the applicant has requested relief from condition 25 uh, and also modification of the mobile ordering language in condition number 26, given that In-N-Out does not offer advanced mobile ordering and is a uh, on-demand fresh food product. Uh, the applicant is present and uh, available to speak to those requested modifications as well. So with that, that concludes staff's presentation. Thank you, Ms. Behoshek. Commissioners, questions for staff? Um, okay, well, obviously we'll hear from the applicant. I'd be curious to know more about the uh, striking of condition 25. Um, 
Okay, we'll open up the public hearing, uh, and I have a speaker card here. We have the applicant come forward, uh, Katie Sanchez, whom I'll note has the most fun address I've, I've ever seen, located at Hamburger Lane in Baldwin Park. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I want to apologize for my voice. Not sick, just woke up like this. So, um, Katie Sanchez, In and Out Burger, 13502 Hamburger Lane, Baldwin Park, California, 91706. So, thank you for um, all the hard work that we've, we've done with staff over the last three years, I'd say, um, given the COVID time. I think Mr. Garcia and I were both at home working, trying to get through this a couple of years ago. Um, we started wanting our building in a different position, which we were asking for a variance. Um, we fought hard for that, um, but <clears throat> unfortunately, now that we see the new site plan, I think it's beautiful. Up on the counter, um, on the corner, we moved the building up to the, to the corner area to provide pedestrian. Uh, sorry, my voice is distracting. <clears throat> to provide um, pedestrian walkway and entrance, um, I wanted to touch on. I'm asking for item number 25. So really, um, with an in and out we don't uh, refer to it as odor, but we refer to it as, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, our issue with having that there is, you know, we've had them at several stores, and they've always been a huge maintenance issue for us. Um, in addition, we, there's never been a report that we've been asked for um, or any type of California report that has come back since it's necessary for us. And I'm unaware of any building business around us, a restaurant that has been um, asked for this requirement as well. So <clears throat> with that said, we're asking if that can be struck from our um, conditions. In addition to um, just touching on what Anna said, it's just the language on, 20, on item number 26. Uh, we felt that it was the way it was described as if we have um, uh, mobile ordering and that our associates would let those people coming to pick up um, orders, Uber, whomever, um, to park in certain places. We don't do that. Our customers only come up, order, and get fresh food um, um, either brought to them in the drive through lane or up in the dining room. So um, that's about all I have as comment-wise. So um, if you have any comments or questions for me. Thank you, Commissioner, Commissioner, <laughs> Vice Chair. Reading 26, I can understand the last part of it, an advanced mobile ordering could be deleted, but the rest of it has to do with your queuing and not blocking the public right away. So if you do have an extra 10 cars, 12 cars, you're not blocking the right away coming in and also uh, uh, I think it's uh, City Boulevard West. So I think uh, I, I would be willing to get rid of the advanced mobile ordering portion of it, but the rest of it would have to would stay in because yeah. it does have to do with the queuing and of vehicles blocking, blocking public Which we're good with. I think I had requested um, anything after the word clear. I think that was right, Anna, in um, my email earlier to her. So, um, and we have associates out in the parking lot directing traffic. Someone needs to pull out. There's associates out there helping that as well. So we're good with everything up until. Yeah, clear would make sense. So, yeah, yeah okay, at a public right-of-way period. Okay. And, yeah, I think we can get rid of the advanced mobile ordering for pickup where customers can park and direct as employees. Because uh, everything else I think I read, it just it talks about queuing at no time will the operator vehicles or customers straddle the public right away, sidewalks, streets, driveways, and shall employ measures to direct customers from causing any such conflict with keeping with the public right away 
clear by ensuring a maximum queuing stacking of 30 vehicles. Then after that can go away. Okay, thank you. Uh, and uh, probably staff, um, and, and I don't know, I mean, I know a lot of your locations. I, from here probably to Santa Maria and up even into Medford, Oregon, so. Um, but I think one of the reasons the scrubbers are there is because of the apartment building being right next to them, so close to it. Um, am I correct? That's correct. Um, I think what everybody loves about In-N-Out is the smell of In-N-Out, but if you're living right next door to In-N-Out all yeah, the time. Yeah, and, and being. And um, we wanted to be sensitive to that very real interface condition. So, okay. I, I understand that too. I mean, you got a six-story building. Is that six or five-story building? Uh, it's four-story building. Four stories, and, mm -hmm. and, and everything rises. So, and I can imagine living on that side of the building and trying to have a window open, and all you're getting is your hamburger smell coming inside, and so, okay, thank you. Thank you, any other questions? I, um, I, have, I have a question. So, we, we, and it was referenced, we've received in our commissioner communication from the community manager of the, of the nearby, um, uh, complex and so yeah obviously goes through the the concerns you know and and they're typical the projects we hear of course noise traffic some of the things at the end say you know um, yeah noise regulations on-site security after 10 p.m. signage to direct traffic one of the things that we live in is we don't we're not we don't live in your business model so we, we always hear from applicants and so just kind of walk me through particularly on-site security, I'm not sure that's your problem. If the community is experiencing that problem now, I don't know that's your problem to solve per se, but does In-N-Out have security in any of their locations? We do when necessary. We don't go in, depending on the neighborhood. Okay. But typically we don't go in with a security guard. We have one there all through construction, obviously. And then if something comes up as we're open, we would put it there, honestly, before the community would ask us to put it there. So okay. we're very aware, okay. safety-wise and Everything, so. Okay. Um, and then signage to direct traffic. Well, we can we can get into that with our staff questions because obviously queuing is the big thing that we'll we'll, we'll probably have a, when we when we close the public hearing. We'll probably have a lot of conversation about that. Um, okay, that's it for me for now. Commissioner Martinez. Uh, uh, one one of the things I did not see in any of the plans was the location of where. The, the speaker system is that you place your order and how close it is to the uh, residential area. The, uh, uh, so I'm looking on, on this this drawing and I'm looking at those little, are those umbrellas? The yep. little red? So it things. would be in the first one. Up on top there's a red truck. Uh, okay, keep going. Way in the top? Uh-huh, right. Um, keep um, going a little bit. Right there? Yeah, right there. So that's the speaker system? Okay. It's facing, it'd be facing the parking lot. Facing, okay, got it. And really, we don't use that speaker. If it gets to a car, they're an eighth car, we pull out an associate and they take mobile or they take orders off of our iPad. So today, I feel like the speaker system is rarely used unless it's in the beginning, like in the morning. But once we get to that eighth car, to that speaker, we send an associate out. Got it. Okay. Sometimes more than one. Thank you. Okay. Commissioners? Okay. Okay. Um, 
thank you. We'll, we'll bring you up after uh, public comment because I see that we do have, so we'll move forward um, hearing from the public and then we'll call up Charles Gates. Thank you. Thank you. Charles, you've been here the whole evening, so you know the drill. You get three minutes to address the commission, yeah, sure. share whatever you'd like based on the side. Okay, I'm one of those people that live at Amley Apartments, like right across the street. It's pretty much a walk from where you are to that front door. That's, I just want you to kind of absorb what that's gonna be like. Um, there's a thousand people that live at this apartment complex, actually more than that. We're doctors, we're nurses, we're teachers. Um, putting a restaurant that is open till 1.30 in the morning, literally 50 feet from my window. I live on the side. If you put that picture back up there where those palm trees are, I live right across the street from there. Um, it's just not wise at all, okay? This is, this is not a well-thought-out plan. We talked about the traffic. Nobody even mentions there's a Krispy Kreme right next to that. The traffic from Krispy Kreme goes out to the parking lot and all the way around the street now. So I'd like somebody to address <laughs> how is that exactly going to work, you know? I've lived there for six years, by the way, and I can move. I mean, I have the money and the resources to move, which I will if they actually build this. But I just feel bad for, like I said, half the people that live where I live, and I'm here speaking for them. Um, they, ooh, these are doctors and nurses that work at UCI Med Center you know, that get up at six in the morning. I teach 12th grade, I get up at six in the morning. I worked throughout the pandemic from September 2020. Um, having a restaurant that's open till one in the morning, literally 50 feet from my window, is just not, not wise, guys. This is not an urban area now. Not since that apartment complex has been built. Now it's, it, it's families, it's kids. It's kids that walk across those streets. There, there's no lights there. There's a, just a little crosswalk. Um, I just really encourage you to go check it out, you know what I mean, before you make this decision. Because I love In-N-Out. I don't have a problem with In-N-Out at all. But I don't know of another In-N-Out that is built within 50 feet of 1,000 people where they live. I just can't think of an example. And I go back, I grew up with In-N-Out, one of the oldest ones on Foothill Boulevard in Laverne. I love it. I, I went to high school in Medford, Oregon. I appreciate the fact that they're there. So it's not a, an issue against In-N-Out. Moreover, I don't understand why they didn't build this on the other side of the mall where the BJ's is. And there's a parking lot that I drive through the mall every day. I get off at City Way off the 22 and I drive through this area. There's all kinds of space on the other side that's right off the 22 freeway. So I'm not sure why you didn't move that all the way over there. And there wouldn't be any issue because there's no houses. Um, so, you know, I'm here to speak to that and to speak to just for common sense um, and for you to consider what this is going to do to the community. Because um, it's going to be a profound ramifications for a thousand plus people who live there. Um, and so... That's why I stuck around for three and a half hours tonight, just to make my case on that. So, Mr. Gates, Good thank, you. thank you. Thank um, you. Other public comments on the item? Um, seeing none, I would uh, customary to give the applicant uh, courtesy of speaking after public comment if you'd like to or <clears throat> no. Okay. Um, I will close the public hearing. If there aren't, are there any other questions of the applicant at this point? Okay. Okay. So while we'll close the public hearing, ask the question to staff. Isn't that? Isn't there a light there where Metropolitan Way hits 
Chapman Avenue. Um, uh, Vice Chairman Glasgow and members of the commission, my name is Doug Keyes and I'm the transportation analyst here at the city of Orange. Um, I believe what we're referring to is where the city way uh, and the city boulevard west, uh, that intersection up there in the upper left corner. Is that what I, we're referring no, to? I thought he was talking about a chap at, at State College. And I believe he was referring to, the gentleman was referring to the sidewalk that Where separates it's a stop. the okay. proposed restaurant from the Amley. That is a four-way stop sign. Mm -hmm. And as part of the uh, traffic analysis for this project, the consultant was asked to do a traffic signal warrant. Traffic signal warrants were run for two hours, four hours, and eight hours, and they did not meet the warrants for signalization there. Do that between December 18th and December 25th. <laughs> well, a lot <laughs> of this was easy. done pre-pandemic, yeah. actually, yeah. because they initiated the project very early. So, but no, I was just, just kidding. That, that, a lot of parking spaces not there. But anyway, okay, and that's why I thought he was talking about at Chapman, not at, at Cityway and Cityway Way. Uh, City Boulevard. So, no, the actually, actually, their traffic study does recommend some crosswalk enhancement, high visibility crosswalks to be repli to replace the existing crosswalks that are there now. Okay. Um, any other questions, Mr. Keys? Uh, uh, my question would be: um, No surprise, you've lived with it more than us, but we're we're always learning how to improve with queuing and as we see spillage out into some, some streets. And it's obviously an announced uh, third, would be their third location in Orange. Um, I guess I'd be, be curious, is there anything we've learned that we're deploying here um, that we feel is gonna make things um, where they should be? Thank you for that question. That is uh, something that we are learning. In, we, it's very dynamic process as we've, uh, evolved and gotten better at drive-through restaurants. Uh, you will notice that both conditions are that we like to put in for our drive-throughs are in there. Uh, numbers 26 and 27. 26 speaks to, as was mentioned earlier, keeping traffic out, the queuing traffic out of the public right-of-way. And number 27 speaks to if we are having difficulties the project proponent would come back and work with staff to come up with some other solutions. If that cannot, if we cannot come up with a viable solution, the opportunity is there in condition 27 to bring the project back to the planning commission to review the conditional use permit. So uh, we feel from a staff's perspective that these two conditions give a level of comfort to the planning commission and the decision makers relative to queuing analysis that are done for this. I would also like to go into a little bit of detail relative to, you mentioned lessons learned. Mm -hmm. We also, when we do the queuing analysis, we ask that both of the locations that are currently in the city of Orange be included. So there were over, I believe there were 11 locations that were analyzed as for the queuing analysis, typically, we look for three or four. Mm. In this case though, we wanted to make sure we touched all the bases on this one. And so we asked that both of the locations in the city of Orange out on East Chapman and out on North uh, Tustin 
be included in the analysis as well. In fact, it is actually the Tust North Tustin location in the all of the queuing analysis that comes up with the highest, uh, their, their max, they do hit 30. So again, this, uh, the queuing that is proposed here speaks to 30. Now, I'd also say too, that the 30 counts back to where the beginning of the drive-through double stack is. What you'll also see is behind there leading to that first drive, to that entry driveway, you have about 200 feet, slightly less than that. So what that does is that provides a little wiggle room, if you will, for extra vehicles that would come in and there we can store an additional 10 vehicles there before we start uh, encroaching into the driveway area. So now we're not talking about 30 vehicles for queuing, we're talking about 40 vehicles maximum for mm. queuing. And worst case scenario, we always talk about the public right of way. If these vehicles were in some instance to back out onto City Parkway, or City Boulevard East, that indeed is a private roadway, as you mentioned. And so again, it would be the responsibility for addressing that would be up to the property management and the in and out folks. So also too, one of the things that in and out has done is it, they have, a, have evolved as well. For instance, they actually, and it was mentioned earlier, they actually bring out the handheld, the employee with the handheld ordering device when we get back beyond the order board. And as it was mentioned, the order board is at the number eight car position. And if you remember in the past, we've had these discussions about where's a good place to put the order board so that they'll have enough orders up there so that we can keep the line moving. And we have found that we typically like to put the order board from the fifth car back. We've seen a lot of them that come in with a fourth car, third car, things like that. We find that those don't work as well. So now we have the eighth car. When the eighth, when you get, the eighth car gets back to the order board, staff sends out a, another a staff employee to take orders on the handheld order board. Also keeps the noise down relative to the, uh, to, the, to the speaker volume as well for late night, those sorts of things. So again, and from these queuing analyses, one of the things that we have learned in the, op, in the locations that are in our area is that there's a constant flow of traffic there always is going to be some activity going there. We don't find any periods where there's zero cars in the queue. There's always some, from opening to closing, there will be vehicles in the queue. So that potential to reach that number eight back to the order board is very realistic, which will entail them bringing out an additional employee to take, uh, to take orders. So again, lessons learned. These are the type of lessons that we've seen here. These are improvements over and above what have occurred at the other two locations that are indeed in and out burgers here in the city of Orange. I hope that answers your question. No, I, yes, it does. I'd say I appreciate even the, the, the time we're paying sure. uh, on this one because it's, it's so important for us to, to get right. Understanding that it's dynamic, as you said. Um, the question was brought up about uh, from the, from, um, uh, from the neighbors just about directional signage and can you just kind of point to 
is there directional mm -hmm. signage, you know, drive through here, that kind of thing? One of the nice things that we have here is if you, looking at the existing site, there's three driveways. Looking now, there's one driveway, main driveway, two directional, and then you have that further down, there's another driveway at the southerly end by the property line, right just there. So what we have, what, where we were before was with the three driveways, with the northerly driveway, there could have been potential problems as far as where people are going to be, how do I know where to get in at? With the d consolidation of the driveways along City Boulevard, what we have now is it's, mo it's more clear cut for those individuals who would be driving to this location where exactly the entries are. There is no entry off of City Drive. There is no entry off of the City Way, only off of City Boulevard. Okay. Thinking about bad jokes, we figured out how to get in and out. Got it. Um, it's too late. So I think, um, you know, following up, I, I, I'm appreciative of, of, I mean, if you've been there, it is real, I guess, south to, to this, that, that um, depending on what hour you go, that um, it's getting late, the donut spot. Krispy Kreme, yeah, it, it is sort of a wild kind of even navigating, you know, where, where the lines are stacked up, and um, I think maybe some of to what you just discussed would kind of address some of that concern. It's kind of obvious where folks are going that would want to get to in and out Absolutely. I yeah. also would like to say, too, in the evolution that the city has gone through relative to drive-throughs, where Krispy Kreme to have come in today, <laughs> the scrutiny on their, on their queuing would be much more thorough than it had been Okay. that time before that Great. so again it's what lessons that we learn and things for instance the north tustin location of in and out came in with a, a new drive a new drive-through plan just to improve the drive-through because they realized they could improve their business by improving the drive-through now we've got a better drive-through there so again, lessons learned and we pay attention to these things and we try and improve every time we have the opportunity. I believe this is a good example of the evolution of our drive-through experience here in the city of Orange. Great, thank you. Any, Certainly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the, the parking, it shows like they have 100 and some, 113 parking spots. Yes, sir, 113. Okay. Is that dedicated just to in and out or is that dedicated to the uh, those are the 113 spaces within the out parcel as it's referred to so while certainly somebody could park there and go and, and walk into the mall it would be unlikely that they would do that so again these spots part of the out parcel are dedicated to that specific use the requirement is 110 and they provide 113 okay thank you any other questions um, my final question for staff, apologies. So I know El Torito, I imagine they had a liquor license and I know we're demolishing, but I, I believe it resides with, with the address. Will they be retaining the liquor license there? We're not, obviously, it's, I didn't see anything that says they're surrendering that as a part of this. Uh, I, I looked at that issue. There was a CUP uh, 1763 that was issued uh, for a type, for a sit down restaurant with a type 47 license. So with this project, in essence, there's no longer a sit-down restaurant. The entire uh, floor plan is, is being scraped down and, and rebuilt. So really, 
there would not be any danger in leaving it there. However, just just to button things down, I recommend that if this is approved, that you add a uh, surrender yep. uh, condition. Okay. In, in addition, if I could just add one more thing, if you are considering, there's no condition regarding the hours of operation. Um, so since the staff report does state what the hours are, I think that should be part of the conditions. Question of in and out on that also. Okay. Can we bring in and out? Yes, we're going to reopen the public hearing and uh, ask Ms. Sanchez to come back up. Can't she just nod? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. She got to do it from the podium. Know, we're, we're really making you work here. Thank you. And the concern was open until 1.30 in the morning and the noise level. Um, to address that, is there a way that, you know, you have staff monitoring that? I mean, it's, uh, we want to be as friendly as we can to our neighbors. I mean, believe me, once you guys are opened up and running, uh, you'll probably get a lot of service out of that apartment complex um, just because of the location and, and where they're at. Um, but do something to address the noise issues after 11 o'clock or something and, and to try to curb that down as much as possible? Um, I'm, not, <clears throat> I'm not really sure how we can determine whether it's in and out noise or the mall noise or traffic noise, bowling alley noise. Well, so what would you, I'm just, I guess I'm looking for some clarification. I would think the staff could be able to walk outside <clears throat> and if they hear somebody's car radio blasting or they hear people out there yelling, it's probably going to be from the in and out at, after 11 o'clock at night, especially the mall is going to be closed. So any noise is going to come from that area. Either you guys or Krispy Kremes or one of the other restaurants that are still open. So I just, I want to be sensitive to the neighbors and, and make sure that they, hey, we, we have some type of a, condition in this is hey they're going to they're going to monitor our noise in their area just to to be friendly neighbors if i may uh commissioner so there is the standard uh 23 in conjunction with the operation of business mm -hmm. all noise levels generated shall conform to levels allowed by the omc you're looking for more beyond well, that just, potentially? just make sure that they follow that i mean that's probably i mean it's in all the conditions but mm -hmm. you know i've been at the in and outs especially after ball games and after stuff and, and they're pretty loud and they can get really loud and rambunctious or if you know you're getting close to the end of, of bars and stuff closing down and people are hungry and you know it, it's just something to to assure that the neighbors are hey we're gonna we're gonna monitor this and we're gonna be on this and and uh, um, be good neighbors speaking from my past life in and out when I worked at the stores every time there was an issue outside a fight two football teams there's definitely involvement in the staff coming out there if it gets over and above what's acceptable Okay. So other than that, I mean, I think we all know our restaurants. We keep tabs on what's going on inside and outside of the restaurant. So for our own reputation as well. And your uh, uh, interior is open until 1.30 in the morning. Am I correct? It's just not drive through. Yep. It's, um, we're open until 1.30 Friday and Saturday, Saturday. nights. And then 1 o'clock Sunday, Thursdays. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Commissioner Simpson. I was just going to add that the uh, added benefit or luxury may be the um, pr uh, private security uh, patrol that they have on, at the mall, which isn't a luxury that is enjoyed by either other orange. So perhaps keep, that will help the point. situation. Not yeah. that we would have any jurisdiction or make it part of the condition, but maybe that would help the address that issue. Okay, we'll go close the public hearing. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, um, I am uh, would like to make a motion on this, but want to see if there's any further comments before we make a motion here. Okay. So I'll do my best to see if we can incorporate uh, what we've heard. 
So I'll move that the Planning Commission adopt Planning Commission Resolution Number 32-22 entitled the Planning a Resolution of the Planning Commission of the City of Orange approving conditional use permit number 3126-20, design review number 5016-20, and minor site plan review number 1020-20 to construct a new fast food drive-through restaurant with associated site improvements located at 3520 the City Way East. I'll, den I'll denote with the conditions. Um, if it's okay, as maker of the motion, I'd like to keep commit condition 25 about the odor um, scrubbers, um, not knowing enough um, if they understand if they work, don't work. I think there's enough justification to say we, we'd like to see that. Um, on condition 26, we would strike just uh, after clear, I believe. After 30 vehicles. Uh, So to, from causing any such conflict with keeping the public right of way clear, period, is what I understood the request was. Correct? It just, it just addresses by, by ensuring the maximum ceiling stacking of 30 vehicles. And then stop okay. there. And then oh, I see. Are you opposed to that? I had not. I don't know if you were able to hear. Okay, great. So then I'll, I'll, I'll say then after vehicles, period. Um, and then uh, we'll add the surrendering of the existing, uh, is it type 47 or 41? 47 um, license. Look for a second of the motion. Okay. The motion has been seconded. There's a clarification here from the vice chair before we vote. Please. And it's in there about the noise. Well, I, th I think, yeah, I think the, the it's not a, Direction, but the posture of the of the of the commission obviously is be a good neighbor. Um, so please, uh, commissioners, please vote. Uh, congratulations, the motion carries four zero. Um, I wonder where we're all headed now. Um, <laughs> the. Uh, Commission will adjourn. Um, I, I, I know it's safe to say uh, from this uh, commission, want to wish everybody a happy holidays. Um, certainly, staff, thank you as always, Mr. Vice Chair. Yeah, I'd like to also, I'd like to thank staff. Again, you guys have done a great job this year and last year through COVID and now coming out of it and, and giving us reports and good reports and, and making sure that we have the information that we need. And I just appreciate you guys and, and, and what you do and the, the hard work you guys put into this along with the Mary Benning putting, making sure that we're not doing anything that's going to get us all in trouble. <laughs> we, and you guys have a great Merry Christmas. Yeah, we all echo that. Thank you. Meeting adjourned. Merry Christmas.